0: I'm Mike Gillis, and
1: I'm Casey Doran, and this is Radio Versus the Martians. This month, Alan Moore's Watchman.
0: something, the Citizen Kane, of its particular medium, is one of the biggest cliches in the world. But sometimes there are those rare instances where the comparison is not just accurate, but eerily accurate. So to risk cliche, I'll just say it. 1986's Watchmen by writer Alan Moore and artist Dave Gibbons is the Citizen Kane of comic books. Watchmen wasn't just a 12-issue miniseries. It wasn't just another story about superheroes in a medium drowning in capes and tights. Like Orson Welles Kane, Watchmen was a transformative event for the medium. It was a brick through the industry's plate glass window, a KT boundary between what people felt were the limitations of mainstream American comic books and what the medium could be capable of. Watchmen's unquestioned reign as the greatest comic book ever written is a consensus shared even by people who've never cracked its spine and actually read it. Beyond the universal praise the series got from the ranks of comic book fans and industry professionals, it has achieved a glowing critical reception in mainstream press that was a first for the industry. Time magazine, who would later include Watchmen on its top 100 English-language novels of the 20th century, called it a superlative feat of imagination combining sci-fi, political satire, knowing evocations of comics past and bold reworkings of current graphic formats into a dystopian mystery story. And again, like Kane, it's a reputation well-earned. Singing Watchmen's praises is the easiest thing in the world for me to do. Explaining what Watchmen is actually about? eh, Not so easy. I could easily say it's an apocalyptic conspiracy story set in an alternate version of 1985, where superheroes are real, Richard Nixon is still president, everybody drives electric cars, the Cold War is at its hottest, and American national security is in the hands of a blue demigod who is slowly shedding his humanity. But that's just the plot. Well, sort of. It's not really what Watchmen is about. Watchmen is about taking this four-color superhero archetype that only existed on paper and explored what it might actually be like in the real world with all its grime, shame, and moral ambiguity. What might motivate an adult to put on a colorful costume with trunks on over their tights, and go out at night to beat up on burglars, drug dealers, and rapists? How would muddy adult realities change characters originally created to be childhood escapist fantasies? And how would that world, its history and its culture, be changed, because these characters were now a part of it? Oh man, I love, love, love the fuck out of Watchmen. It's that rare work of art that I always manage to discover a new facet to, in each of the at least dozen times I've read this story in its entirety. And it's a book that I love so much that I own at least eight different versions of it, from the massive, oversized $100 Absolute Edition, with the expensive thick paper, remastered coloring, the slipcase, and the reproductions of Alan Moore's insanely detailed scripts. I even own a digital copy of Watchmen on this very tablet I'm reading this monologue on and show notes off of. I love it that much. And loving this book this much is a weird thing, even in the worlds of comic fandom, because we all profess to love Watchmen, even if we haven't read it. It's just expected, and calling it your favorite is considered a bit of a cliche. But you know what? Fuck it. Watchmen is my favorite comic book of all time, and it's the subject of today's panel episode of Radio vs. the Martians. Let's meet the panel. First... A new panelist. He's no stranger to comic books. He's the host of the Fire and Water Podcast, dedicated to D C heroes, Aquaman and Firestorm, as well as the man behind the Aquaman Shrine dot net, as well as the author of the book Hey Kids Comics, True Tales from the Spinner Rack. Welcome to the show, Rob Kelly.
2: I see a pretty butterfly, fellas. <laughs> <laughs>
0: and returning panelist, he's the host of the Ask an Atheist Radio Program. Welcome back, Mr. Sam Mulvey. Hi. And finally, the Night Owl to my Rorschach, the Wally Weaver to my Dr. Manhattan, Mr. (laughs) Casey Doran. Hello, why didn't I get to be Rorschach? (laughs) Well, Uh well, because I'm always digging through your garbage. (laughs) So I really want to get right into this. Rob Kelly, again, like I said, you're no stranger to the world of comics. How would you describe the reputation that Watchmen has among comic book fans in the industry?
2: Uh, I would agree that the comparison between... uh... Watchmen and Citizen Kane is, is pretty close. I think there are some major differences in that. I feel as though that Watchmen inspired and influenced a corner of the medium uh, and the rest of the medium just sort of went on without it uh, even though the idea was that Watchmen would point the way into more sophisticated storytelling for all sorts of comics, but I feel like superhero comics just went, yeah, no, never mind, thanks, and went on their own merry way, unlike uh, to me, every movie is influenced by Citizen Kane, whether they've seen it or not.
3: Hmm.
2: Uh, it just is. Every To me, every movie has Citizen Kane in its DNA. Uh, Watchmen, not so much. But then there are other comparisons in that, yeah, I would agree. It, it is probably the greatest achievement that comics have produced to this point. And similarly, I think that Orson Welles was treated by his industry very similar to how Alan Moore was. <laughs> and <laughs> They both ended up sort of outsiders and angry outsiders at that, which is very, very sad when you think about it, because both mediums would have been much more uh, better off if they could have continued on and been working right there in the trenches as opposed to sort of working at the margins, which, uh, you know, both of them did for a long time
0: absolutely i know casey you actually worked in a comic book shop for some
1: time so that's that's true you were aware of Watchmen. i was aware of Watchmen. actually uh, as shamefully as it is i didn't actually read it while i worked at the comic book store i don't know why it took me into my 20s early 20s to read it because my friend brian had it um that was like what five years probably five or six years before the movie came out so uh what i can remember of the first read-through was the incredible density and um the thing, sort of visually, I had never seen a comic book since, and I read a lot of comic books that had had that strange juxtaposition of this weird muted tones next to the sort of four pe- four color primary color superhero coloring that you would expect. Have those two things somehow collided together with one another? Like visually, my first read through was just was was mind blowing, and of course, um, it's the sort of thing where I read it just in, just far enough apart that I forgot most of it but every single time you're rediscovering that's the thing that I love about it you're rediscovering things that you could not have even seen the first time around and that's amazing incredible
0: so Sam I actually one of the major reasons I wanted to have you on this panel is that you were not somebody who had read this comic before preparing for the show right and you'd heard of it though Oh, yeah. And not just because you know me and I'm a giant nerd for this sort of no, stuff. No, I was, I was aware
4: of its existence well before I met you.
0: So what was the impression that you had of Watchmen before reading it? And what had you heard about it?
4: Well, my impression of Watchmen before reading it was it was something uh, a very specific type of comic book fan would talk about incessantly. Um, it was... Uh, it's the kind of thing where it's it it's the comic book that uh, or you know the graphic novel whatever that uh it that would be owned by the guy with a Frodo Lives bumper sticker on the back of his car. <laughs> uh, it, it was that kind of thing. It was like it's it was like this niche thing inside of uh inside of a of a larger sort of fandom. And I think that I think that holds up with the Citizen Kane thing too because there's a there's, there's a neat there's a group of people who incessantly talk about Citizen Kane. I mean, you can get a degree in Citizen Kane studies if you want. And and I think that's that's essentially true. The other thing I knew is that it was uh, a lot of the characters in that people would tell me about were basically borrowed from a former uh, comic book company. Yes, I Charlton, knew Comics. Yeah, mm. Charlton Comics. Yeah, Charlton Comics. Yeah,
0: that actually was one of the things that prompted this series being done is that one of the things Mar- uh, DC Comics did over the past few decades is As one of their competitors would collapse or go out of business, they would purchase all of their characters. So they purchased uh, the character of Captain Marvel, the Shazam Captain Marvel, as uh, the comic book Fawcett Company. uh, Fawcett Comics went out of business because they sued the shit out of them and uh, purchased those characters. The Charlton characters was uh, one of the last publishing uh, purchases that they had made. And originally they had asked Alan Moore... To write a story using these characters, and when they had an idea of what he actually wanted to do with them, they're like, okay, these characters
1: are going to be unusable <laughs> after you actually write them in this yeah. way. The, the quote that I heard was, great story, Alan, wonderful. Only we were planning to use them again after. <laughs>
0: right? So he really does break the toys, and we yeah. were talking to Greg Hatcher last time about you know the way he writes Sherlock Holmes is that don't break the toys. Alan Moore is definitely a writer who likes to break the toys and see what the pieces can be put back in together. He doesn't just want to use the Lego instruction booklet. He wants to build something new out of all these parts and say something about what these parts are. So, Sam, now that you've actually read it, what do you think of Watchmen? Well, uh,
4: you, you you sold it to me as as a realistic portrayal of what comic uh, comic book superheroes might be like in a realistic setting, and... I don't really feel like that's what I got. Uh, I feel like I got something very different. Um, and I'll get into that a little bit more later. But I was actually surprised by two things. Um, the, uh, the complexity of the story, uh, which was uh, more, than I, than, more than I thought, the way people would t- describe it to me, it sounded incredibly simplistic. Like the way it was, just the plot was described. Me, it sounded like something that was going to be flat storytelling that you get like out of most superhero comics, and it was something that just wasn't going to grab my interest. Um, And that's not what I got. Uh, What I got something was was very literary in its in its approach, and uh, which has some strengths and has some flaws. Um, But the attention to detail in in the history of the world that it created, I think, was the the biggest thing for me um especially the parts of the world that i i that i'll, that I'll pay attention to like oh i don't know like the new frontiersman yes i mean that yeah. uh, that's the kind of stuff that i pay attention to when i'm when i'm in a place i, I have a we're five feet away from my propaganda collection i mean <laughs> it's and, and it's that sort of thing it's that attention to detail that i i really really liked um, I was I was well taken with it, and I would actually, at this point, consider myself a fan.
0: That's actually one of the things I think really built this story and made it different, is that at the end of each of the issues, there are these text chapters that are pieces of literature or media or uh, entries in somebody's autobiography that come out of that world and help build that world. A New Frontiersman, of course, is the right-wing conspiracy mag. Yeah, It's kind of like, imagine Glenn Beck with a third of a tenth of an eighth of the budget <laughs> i think there's like three guys working at the office and it's just the most bizarre right-wing insane nonsense where i think there's this off-handed hand-waving about well you might have heard a couple bad things about the kkk but they get a bad rap um and i knew going into the sim that knowing your love of crazy propaganda and just horrible people who like to put pen to paper yeah i knew you would enjoy that one so and
4: all the all the interesting 20th century history hits uh yes. in it uh just the 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 parts where uh like uh as as uh bill hicks described once the part where america went insane yeah and that's the era this this is kind of a, ret- a kind of retrospectives i don't know what the
1: so th- that's something that i really wanted to talk about and i'm sorry to break you up Sam. no no go right ahead um when, if you watch the movie, which we'll talk about um, now with a 2006 or 2015 eye, um, or you read the comic book now, you don't actually understand that when the audience, when it was written, it was not an alternate past. It was an alternate present. present yes. And so that actually really colors the way you as the reader now will look at it because we don't have the constant tension that you would have had in the '80s over actual nuclear annihilation, it wasn't. It's not something that we feel the gravity of now, uh, th- and we did then. Um, and that's important.
4: I, I I am old enough to remember the childhood uh, version of the fear of existential nuclear annihilation. We're talking about right. duck and cover. Duck and cover. Yeah, I, I actually experienced some of that. I mean, I never I never got old enough where I experienced it as an adult because by the time that happened, the you know USSR had uh, gone on a business, um, but. I, it really did capture, and that was one yeah. of the things that I really liked, it really oh, yeah.
0: captured that dread that any moment the world could just vaporize. So, getting into something, the artist of the series, Dave Gibbons, once said about Watchmen that it became much more about the telling of the tale than the tale itself, and it's really the plot itself is of no great consequence So for the purpose of this discussion, I know that we're going to have a lot of listeners that actually haven't read Watchmen, but I think we should spoil the shit out of it. Because like you said, Sam, the basic plot itself is kind of simplistic, but I think it forms a skeleton that we can build the meat of this discussion around. So I think let's just collectively as a group, briefly, if that's even possible, let's talk about what Watchmen is actually about. So Rob, if you can kind of get the ball rolling on this, what is Watchmen about plot-wise?
2: Well, it opens it opens as a murder mystery in that uh, someone is killed and we don't exactly know why that's significant. And then we're introduced to Rorschach, who, for better or worse, is sort of our narrator in the beginning of the story. And then he, we find out that, of course, the person murdered was the comedian, a former superhero and government agent. And this starts off Rorschach's sort of, uh, well, Rorschach's already, you know, mostly paranoid, uh, so it doesn't take much to push him into the idea that, okay, uh, this might be something, you know, more than just a random murder because the comedian uh, was sort of not superpowered, but certainly not somebody that the average person could kill. And then an attempt is made on the life of the Night Owl and Ozymandias. And this, you know, it basically becomes who's killing the superheroes. And of course, uh, that you know, it, it story spreads out from there. But in terms of its beginnings, it's it's, you know, Pretty basic. It's a murder mystery. It's a who done it. And that's I always feel like that's that's part of what Alan Moore was trying to do is was take these very hoary, uh, old storyline story concepts and build something fresh and new out of them.
0: Yeah, I think a big part of the story too to recognize is that aside from one of these characters, none of them have superpowers. That that's more human than superhuman. And when you see people get killed they're just getting thrown out of a window that's what yeah. happens at the beginning of the story so you have a sort of a an alternate 1985 you have a murder mystery and you have this sort of looming doomsday clock over it like the entire storyline so you have everyone's thinking we're going to go to war with the soviet union at any sort of time and they have that kind of fear as the backdrop meanwhile there's largely in, to anyone else's mind an inconsequential murder that rorschach is just obsessed with mm-hmm Casey, anything you want to toss onto the?
1: Uh, other than the fact that it does, it does do something that a that a superhero comic series does, which is in the middle of that murder mystery, they put in an origin story, um, which actually is the most comic booky thing about it to me, is that yeah. they have to show the actual superhero, the one with superpowers, and they give him an origin story that they that they, of course, more refrains from doing with everyone else.
4: Uh, some somewhat like it they, they do an origin story and yeah the origin story is i base I, I guess the stock and trade of of comic books right um and comic book movies but they do it in a in a way like uh, they they do it in 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 almost a howard zinn kind of way where it's a it's a mm retrospective, where you're not looking at it where there's not Wagnerian music happening and it's not this big momentous stuff, it's this this weird hokey dude sends you his business card and a horribly typed out, and you don't see the moment where it happens, you see the leftovers, you see what's mm. left in history, and I think that, that was, that was an, an interesting thing is, is that they went to the point where they created a history, like, I think the one of the most important things about this this uh book you gave me is the stuff in between the issues yeah uh is is the history building stuff in the middle of it it, it explains it gives what's going on so much like the uh the bits of Hollis's book uh the uh the the article that that uh night owl 2 uh Dan it? Dryberg Dryberg I okay I got it right uh wrote I like that stuff that stuff was great
3: yeah
0: It also has little Easter eggs throughout that either hint at questions or give you an idea of what happened in this world, because it's a book that really asks you to fill in the gaps yourself and trusts you to do that. So you'll hear an offhanded joke about where the comedian was when Kennedy died, and it's sort of told to... Uh, what's his name? G. Gordon Liddy and a couple of the Nixon guys, <laughs> and it sort of implied like I ha, 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 shot that motherfucker. And that was
4: one of the things. That was one of your selling points, which is the, one of the weird things that this is how well Mike knows me. Is, is a, Sam, you're going to like this. It's got G. Gordon Liddy in it. Yeah, and and he wasn't wrong.
0: <laughs> it's great, and I know that the comedian, the character, the government agent guy, who is kind of this just asshole. Yeah. Uh, and a killer and all sorts of other negative things is largely based not only on the Charlton character, the Peacemaker, but on G. Gordon Liddy himself. This is what oh. G. Gordon Liddy could be if right. he did a bit more push he was Rambo. Yeah. You
1: know, uh, in rereading it again, I realized that within the first few pages of the first issue of Watchmen that it contained two of my favorite tropes, fictional tropes. And they both happened to the same character. It's defenestrations and Hans Grubering, because Comedian does both. (laughs) Comedian gets his ass thrown through a window, and he he goes out like Hans Gruber. (laughs) Love it. I love it. So uh, we kind of
0: have this idea. I think we need to spoil the ending of that, because that's really what this thing is about. The conspiracy to kill superheroes isn't a conspiracy to kill superheroes it's a way to sort of lead rorschach along because you know guess what he's a fucking crazy person yeah. who eats out of your garbage beats up people his detection methods are mostly going into cd bars and breaking fingers until somebody knows something he's a real sherlock holmes that guy <laughs> so um he's basically encouraging rorschach keeping him sort out of the way but really what it is is a former superhero adrian veidt known as ozymandias he's kind of a Alexander the Great Fanboy, who is trying to apply antiquities teachings to the modern world, hits a point where uh, in a meeting that is totally botched in the 1960s to create a new superhero team, he gets a lesson from the comedian and how this Cowboys and Indians thing is just bullshit because within 50 years the nukes are going to start flying And we're all going to be dust and fuck this nonsense. Does it really matter if some guy in a funny costume is robbing banks? Because this is stupid. And uh, takes off, breaks the party, and Ozymandias is left sitting there going, there's got to be a way to save this. And maybe beating up on burglars is not the way to do it. So it's an elaborate conspiracy story where he essentially does what comedian says he wants to do, which is create an elaborate practical joke. To convince the world that they're under attack from forces from outside of our dimension, <laughs> and uh, fake an alien invasion with this giant psychic squid monster God, that has
1: that reveal is absurd. I love yeah. it. Uh, oh.
0: Yeah, and uh. Uh, drops it in the middle of uh, New York City and murders like two, three million, six million people, something like that. Yeah, just murders them and makes the people who are marching towards nuclear war go, "Holy shit, we need to band together." And uh, avert a nuclear war. So that's essentially what I think this story does, is it takes an incredibly morally gray thing where someone says, to save the world, I have to commit mass murder and trick the world into uniting because that's the only way to get people to stop murdering each other is to have something come from the outside that they can hate. And comedian learns about it, needs to be killed, it starts off this cycle. But that's essentially what this story is sort of about, which is superheroes fall short against gray morality and against this sort of ugly, muddy thing where somebody does something really, really horrible for the greater good that works and suddenly punching it and throwing it in jail is such a completely inadequate way of dealing with this problem. So they just have to sort of stand there looking like an idiot in an owl costume
4: i I like it uh, one of the things I like about it is uh i'm gonna get a little uh inter- not not intertextual but uh it's uh what ian uh Ian m banks uh calls an outside context problem uh specifically from his his uh, novel excision, and he described it as you're king of this island uh everything's going pretty good. Uh, you know you've, your technology of spears and and clothing is working pretty well. Then this boat shows up. These people with sticks that make loud noises show up. Say you're now a part of this other nation, and these people would like to have a word with your priests. Mm. And that's that's an outside context problem. Or it just it's something that wasn't really a part of your universe. And I think he's trying to provide that a little bit. And I, I kind of and and that's that's like sort of the positive thing about it is when you've got something outside of. You, attacking you uh, you tend to band together
0: and I think it's another element because there's another one of those from outside factors that comes into the story which is Dr. Manhattan right. who yeah. is the only character with any superpowers and he's a fucking man god <laughs> yeah. he basically more than Superman you know can catch falling planes and save your kitty cat and punch asteroids This is a guy who can basically do whatever he imagines. He can turn one element into another. He can make your head go (laughs) splode. He can essentially deconstruct his entire body and construct it somewhere else. He can teleport. He sees all of the past and present and future all at once. And this is one of the things, because I really want to get into this idea of the realistic superhero, because I know this is what we were talking about before, Sam, Yeah, is that one of the things that superhero comics do... More than anything is they make a lot of assumptions that when you're reading superheroes and this is why I kind of like having the panel that we have is that two of them, Rob and myself, we're lifers. We live in this world and we (laughs) have two of you guys that you come to visit sometimes, but you didn't buy a house there. Right. So I I know that, you know, reading superhero comic stories and watching cartoons of these characters, Rob and I have been doing this shit from the crib. And that we're so steeped in the tropes and in the the genre stuff. We're talking about the archetypes of superheroes. And this is essentially a deconstruction of that archetype of that genre by a writer, Alan Moore, who actually has a lot in common with you, Sam on uh, the front of superheroes, which is that he doesn't like them very much. And, okay. and you look
1: like a hobo wizard, too.
0: Oh, yeah. yes.
2: <laughs> cool. <laughs> and you worship snakes. No, nice. no, but uh, Alan Moore... Don't tell anybody.
0: Jeez. <laughs> yeah, going into this, Alan Moore has said that his job was not going into this to revitalize superheroes or change superheroes, that a lot of his early stuff, whether it's Marvel Man/Miracle Man slash Miracle Man, Swamp Thing, and Watchmen, he just kind of wanted to break superheroes because he was kind of sick of their monopoly. Uh, so and thank you Alan Moore (laughs) so getting into this sort of superhero stuff like I said Rob and I are so steeped in this stuff Sam uh, Casey I know that you guys are kind of familiar with it when Alan Moore is deconstructing a lot of these very specific tropes about these characters and taking apart this stuff how accessible is Watchmen when it's doing that stuff to a non-regular superhero reader
4: I think the accessibility is there because I I mean, especially in 2015, superhero tropes are well known. It's it's Mm. part of the American you know cultural canon because I mean, uh, eight out of ten movies are now comic book movies, and six out of those you know six out of ten of those involve a superhero. So the superhero tropes are well known by everybody. I mean, it it, and I don't think that's a problem at all. It was it was in that respect, it was incredibly uh, uh, incredibly accessible. I, I mean, it, I didn't have any problem with it at all. I, I you know, I probably did, don't catch every reference you guys do. I, like, I know I, I was told that they resembled uh, characters from Charlton Comics, but so there may be things that you guys see that I don't, but I don't think that takes away from the narrative, this enjoyment of the story.
1: And I think the world building is so good and so rich that, um, if you're having trouble understanding why certain characters would be important in this context, um, they're finding ways either in the dialogue or outside of the dialogue to actually draw those connections for you. And there's so much of it um, that if you're paying attention, you don't need to worry about it. You so know? getting back to this sort of
0: central question of what Alan Moore was trying to do with Watchmen and – what i think is the the heart of this story is that deconstruction of superheroes what would they be like in the real world and this is a question that gets done to death quite a bit both before and after watchmen i think watchmen has a somewhat unique take on it but i mean this is what stanley and jack kirby did in the 60s they added Characters that had, for the most part, been fairly one- to two-dimensional, and they added half a dimension to it, and now suddenly they have to worry about paying their bills. They go from Super
4: Mario to Zelda.
0: Yeah, basically, there's there's an added dimension that they sort of added, and it changed superhero comics ever since. That became a part of every superhero comic. We've seen this in stuff like, say, Kick-Ass or Super. Brian K. Vaughn touched on it a little bit with Ex Machina. Mm. So... When Watchmen tackles that question, how well do you think they handled the superheroes in the real world question? Rob, I want to toss this to you.
2: Uh, Hmm. I have to think about that, I guess. Uh, I remember reading... I read Watchmen at the time. I read it when it came out. I was 15, and it certainly blew my mind open in terms of... And it sort of made other superhero comics, which I was reading at the time, look feel kind of silly. Uh, You know, it just sort of felt like Boy, this other stuff is just so simple compared to what's going on here. It certainly felt very realistic in terms of, you know, the the details about the the, the that ancillary character Dollar Bill who gets killed when his cape gets caught in a bank revolving door and he's shot to death by a criminal, and uh, you know the fact that uh, Doctor Manhattan can use his powers to simultaneously work on neutrinos while satisfying his girlfriend <laughs> off in another room. I mean, there was just all he's. All these things that you never heard of any superheroes ever doing, and so at the time it certainly felt pretty damn realistic. Now, again, I mean, saying any superhero comic book with a with a character that can do what Doctor Manhattan can do, you know, it feels silly to say, "Well, that's not, you know, that that's well, that's pretty realistic." It isn't, but in terms <laughs> of the world of comic books, it's pretty realistic. We're grading so on a curve. Context, yeah, we're grading on a very big curve. Yeah,
0: superheroes are a genre that really kind of require the universe to play along with them.
4: Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Well, that's you, you sold it to me as as a uh as a realistic superhero story and this is not and that's not really what I got. What I got was a superhero story with depth. When I think realistic superheroes, uh let's talk about the rubber suit in the room. Okay. Let's talk about Phoenix Jones. Let's Phoenix Jones is this guy. Uh, he's a, I, I guess he, he, he could be best described as a failed MMA contestant hmm. uh, who lives in Seattle, who dresses up in a purple, dresses up a little bit like Bible man, actually, oh. now that I think about it. <laughs> um, and and beats people up. He actually does this and he is the most pathetic thing. Ever now, one of my favorite memories of of putting a Vaskin atheist, uh, especially the social parts of it, is me uh, tying one on at a at a bar in Tacoma and trying to convince Mike that we should stage a bank heist so that this guy has something to
0: do. <laughs> You <laughs> wanted us to adopt weird supervillain identities, yeah, too.
4: Yeah, it's like, look, if if he's gonna, if we should go down. We should do this. Somebody eventually did, but I don't think they went as far as staging a bank heist.
0: They did debate him on the radio, though. Okay. And look, he actually said, well, question here. Which one of us is in a radio station dressed like a superhero arguing with a fake villain on the phone?
4: <laughs> you, know, you know my saying, in for a misdemeanor, in for a felony. So if you're going to go, go all the way. Um, that's realistic to me. What this felt like was a standard comic book story with novel like depth. yeah, is what it was. The, and but the thing is is the the realism, I think it probably seems more realistic to you to, to comic book fans than it does to me because you guys, as you say, you've bought in. You are already you already kind of want this world to exist on some level. To me, it didn't seem like realistic superheroes so much as it felt like superhero apologetics. Like, I had I have somebody knocking on my door and says, superheroes can do great things for your life. Take a look. Wow. Like,
0: That's like, that kind of the exact opposite take that I got from it. When I talk about, you know, they need the universe to sort of play along with them. Phoenix Jones is a great example, and I'm glad you brought him up. Because okay. Phoenix Jones is an example of what a superhero would be like in the real world, which is... Look at Batman. Batman, to for the, the book to work, for Batman's stories to work, he has to be so good at what he does that he outshines the entire Gotham City police force. That they can have guys working 24-7 looking for clues. They have the ability to get a warrant in yeah. a way that Batman doesn't. He just shows up, crashes through your skylight, and beats the fuck out of you. <laughs> and... Yet he can follow crimes, and he's able to defeat people that an entire I don't know how many Gotham City cops are at least a couple hundred, yeah, at the size of that city. It's like New Yorkish, and he has to be better than all of them all the time, even though he has to sleep sometimes, and even though all of them are just beating him up and in realistically he'd be in traction half the time, oh yeah. so I think what you have to do with with a character like Batman is. Make him just fucking awesome all the time. What do you want to see with with Batman? And I think this is our good friend Paul Rue said is that really there's only one story that you're writing about Batman, and that is Batman is awesome. (laughs) And that every story you write has to facilitate Batman is awesome. We want to see him do amazing things. We want to see him escape from the alligator pit. We want to see him beat up a room full of henchmen. We want to see him jump over a helicopter on his bat cycle. We want to see him do incredible things. And for him to do those incredible things, the story has to play along with him to, to give him the sort of challenges and victories and also draw him in a way where he's constantly dramatic, constantly posing on gargoyles, constantly doing things that are amazing. I think what Watchmen does is it takes away the Jack Kirby style dramatic art And has these guys standing in a way that is more like a real person posing, is real like a person, a body type that's more like what you'd have even if you were in really good shape, and not letting them look as dramatic. Hmm. And the thing you really realize is, holy shit, that's silly to dress up like an owl. When the world doesn't play along and doesn't give you the moon going behind some clouds behind you. Where it isn't about the world accommodating your existence so that Superman isn't the most bored guy in the world, that there are things that can actually challenge him. So that they create, like, psychic gorilla cyborgs that come down to kidnap people so that he has something to justify his existence.
4: Electric cars. (laughs) Exactly. Stealth flying owl head. Yeah. Hover bikes. Yeah. These don't. These guys are cool. Oh, they are. Yeah. they may you know, uh, Night owl might be a bit flabby in places because he's out of practice, but the guy has
1: yeah, he's got some style. he's got the, he's got a Points straight up
4: bat cave going on there. This is not this is not a less cool Batman. This is just a slightly more realistic Batman. Well, he still has the freaking flying owl head.
1: I think the point that I've heard you make many times that you skip with the Phoenix Jones example is Phoenix Jones in real life can never be better than the Seattle police. Um, but superheroes can. And in this story, definitely the members of the Watchmen can be better than the police. So we've established at least that the universe services superheroes in that way. They,
0: they do. But I mean, there's a part where Rorschach actually runs from the cops. He falls out a window, immediately like busts up his ankle. And rather than the kung fu fight that they give him in the movie where he's fighting 10 guys at once like Batman, they just stomp the shit out of him. Because I don't care if you are Batman, if a bunch of guys with billy clubs descend right. on you, you're fucked. He does pneumatic grapple some guy in the sternum yeah that is pretty <laughs> fucked up and he yeah. also sets another dude on fire with i believe a can of hairspray and a lighter yeah so i don't know rob i want to kind of pull you into this because i know that you're sort of you know weaned on the superhero stuff the way i am i guess how do you see the contrast between the way these characters are portrayed and the way the superheroes that we see in marvel and dc are portrayed
2: Well, Stan Lee referred to, uh, in in that great book, Origins of Marvel Comics, which is like one of my favorite things, he referred to his characters as having, you know, his heroes as having feet of clay. And I like to think Alan Moore gave the characters in Watchmen like feet of marble or titanium or whatever some heavier object is than clay because he saddles them all with some – set. I mean, you know – Dan Dryberg can only get it up unless he's in a night owl costume. <laughs> and, you know, I mean, he really... Most I mean, realistic part fi- of that novel. <laughs> you find... Well, let's not overshare. And you find <laughs> out that... Uh, you, you know, you find out that uh, Wally... Is it Wally Weaver? Yeah. Is the... Uh, you find out that from his years as Dr. Manhattan's sidekick, which, of course, is right out of 1950s and 60s comics, he ended up getting cancer from his association with Dr. Manhattan. Um, you find out that hooded justice in an aside basically can only get it. Uh, another another sexual thing, like likes to beat people up. The comedian's are rapist. I mean, he he really saddles them with these very, very sad side features that, uh, you know, it to me, again, just took what Stan Lee did and just sort of cranked it up to 20. And Captain Metropolis,
0: of, you know, uh, when Captain Metropolis is doing the meeting of new superheroes and he puts up this this map of the united states with all these perceived social ills you notice that yeah, some of them of the... black unrest, <laughs> yeah, anti- black unrest.
2: Yeah.
0: Anti- anti-war demonstrations um promiscuity promiscuity, promiscuity. what the yeah. fuck is a superhero he's gonna like beat the shit out of somebody who's necking in a car how do you how do you <laughs> tackle would... that well, I I, I yeah.
2: avoid I avoid this channel like the plague. But I would imagine if Captain Metropolis lived in the real world, he would have his own Fox News show. Yeah, yeah. And I would watch that show. And I he'd, would watch that show just to see him in a costume every day, talking about you know whatever whatever horrible thing Barack Obama has done today. It's
0: great because you look at there's I think a DC Heroes role playing game did a supplement and they have a shot of a bunch of the characters on, and the shot of Captain Metropolis on that is so fucking wonderful because he looks like such a sad sack, and you know that this guy is this weird. Kind of prude who's into sexual things sort of behind the curtains because remember that's one of the little things that you pick up on the third or fourth reading is that him and Hooded Justice are a couple that Hooded Justice the guy who gets off on beating people up is dating the guy who is kind of a fuddy duddy who doesn't like Sally Jupiter the Silk Specter to talk dirty in public he's like well that's Sally that's just really inappropriate.
2: Oh, but more even gives them these details in in sort of stuff that's just meant to be funny. And like, I think it's in one of the the back features where he mentions that at some point there were no female members left in the Minutemen. And so the whole place smelled like a locker room. Yeah. (laughs) Just that little detail of like. You know, yeah, without a fember, there's no men to keep the place clean, which is something never once referenced in any issue of Justice League of America.
0: (laughs) I really loved that there was a moment in Hollis Mason's biography where he said, as we went from the 40s into the 50s, the bad guys stopped playing around with the masquerade where – for a long time, you'd have guys that would be like Captain Axis or someone else. The, they call them the Screaming Skull. Yeah. And they'd show up in a costume. And when you're wearing an owl costume and punching guys, if the guys you're punching are dressed up in funny costumes too, it's easy to sort of move past that because everybody's doing it. And he said, as we moved into the 50s, we mostly had to deal with like vice dens and prostitution rings and criminals wearing three-piece suits pretty soon when you're the only guy that shows up in costume you kind of feel a little bit silly and that gets into sort of that Phoenix mm-hmm. Jones moment which is their reputation uh, is kind of like Phoenix Jones because I'm a guy who loves superheroes but Phoenix Jones to me is I'm, I, turns me into Joe Jonah Jameson I mean really I'm like he's a menace get him <laughs> off the streets it's, he's going to turn into George Zimmerman any minute now <laughs> so I want to take a quick break and we'll be right back with more Radio versus the Martians And we are back on Radio versus the Martians. Now we are talking about the seminal work in the realm of graphic fiction, Alan Moore and Dave Gibbons' Watchmen from 1986. And we're getting into this superhero thing. What is the deal with superheroes? Why would somebody do this shit in real life? And I think that the question that Watchmen, when they pose it, is the answer isn't really that flattering that you have a bunch of characters that, aside from the two Night Owl characters, Hollis Mason and Dan Dryberg, they're not doing it for the healthiest of reasons.
4: I, I would even say Dan Dryberg isn't actually doing it for the healthiest of reasons all the time. But no. he has a healthy, ad- I would say, he has a healthy adaptation to it.
0: Yeah, I think it's healthier. Again, we're, yeah. we're grading on a curve. And, I mean, if you look at Comedian, uh, who I think probably does it to, I don't know, justify the fact that he likes beating the shit out of people. And he's come up with this whole weirdly nihilistic philosophy that's based around trying to make this, it it comes across like a brutal hipster. I don't know if you can sort of describe it. So he essentially sort of throws out this notion that the entire world is an ugly, violent joke and that he's just playing along with it and that he's just parodying it. So his first costume is kind of like a birthday clown sort of guy. We know he's got the the bozo buttons on the front of his yellow and purple outfit and his second outfit being sort of a parody of the hyper militaristic patriotic character. So <laughs> it, what is, and again, this is something that I don't entirely have an answer to. What is his motivation? Is this just a defense mechanism? Is he just bullshitting? Uh, why does comedian do what he does? Cause I don't think I know.
2: Well, I think part of that gets revealed in that, uh, that monologue, the flashback monologue where he breaks into what's his name? Was Moloch. it Moloch? Yeah. Moloch, yeah. He breaks into Moloch's and he breaks down because he he's drunk and he realizes that, you know, he's I don't know, he's almost like a little too too cool for school and that he's like, Yeah, he's he's a, very similar to like a seventeen year old boy, you know, where he's like, ah, it's all an effing joke, everything sucks, everything's dark. And then when he finds out that there really are people that are going to do the level of, of badness that we find out is coming, it shakes him up. You know, it actually does reduce him to sort of a blubbering mess. So he's, he's kind of like a surface guy, but then he does have some level of, of a heart. I mean, it's a little, I, I always, I feel a little skeptical about in retrospect, that character, because I had a, um, a bunch of years ago, I had a girlfriend that was into comics And she had not read Watchmen, and she read it based on my glowing recommendations. And then she came away with it with a very different perspective because she hated, hated the idea that uh, Sally uh, falls in love. You know, Sally gets raped by the comedian, and then she falls in love with her rapist. And she was so offended by that plot detail that it sort of ruined the whole thing for her. And I will admit that was something that didn't even occur to me. And I, I think that was just because I'm I'm a guy and I have my blind spots. But it's like I see that now and I kind of go, oh, yeah, that, that is kind of a weird male fantasy thing going on that, that is sort of unfortunate. And so it's like the comedian is, is a bad guy and does a lot of horrible things. But it's – I don't know. His badness is at a different level than – Ozymandias is, because Ozymandias is fully willing to kill millions of people, and that's something even the comedian sort of blanches at.
1: And I think it belies a, a theme that is a very, it's a very non-superhero theme in the book, which is the book has a lot to say about fathers. Um, yeah. So for the, most of the characters, fathers are almost entirely absent, or there are stand-in fathers that are abusive, or absent, or neglectful that are in there. And I think that maybe you can you guys could tell me better i think that might be tied into the um tied into sort of superhero themes where um, as a child who has fatherless superheroes in comic book their morality becomes a stand in for masculine masculine sort of moral presence but the fact that it makes one of the central parts of the drama makes lori jupiter's realization of who her father actually is part of the really one of the main main reveals of the book and actually kind of kind of a horrifying and heartbreaking uh heartbreaking thing to have happen, right I mean in one sense, it may be unrealistic uh that they would they would actually fall in love with, with one another, but it also makes it um the the yearning for the father, any kind of father, even if the father is a, an amoral monster
0: it's weird, I guess it would bother me if these characters had been written as healthy and if this sort of fucked up shit probably didn't happen with unhealthy people in real life as well, because Sally Jupiter has such a fucked up relationship with all of this. I wonder if there's a bit of Stockholm syndrome in it, because remember when the comedian tries to rape her in the forties, it's during a meeting of the superhero team and everyone's taking off. They just did class photos and, Remember that the reaction of the team, including the press agent who later ends up marrying Sally Jupiter, is that they need to cover it up, that it's more important for the group to protect their reputation, which is the same reason that they kicked out a gay member of the team Mm -hmm. when it became aware, you know, that it became public knowledge that she was having a relationship with a woman, even though the team knew that there were other gay members on the team and that Sally was sort of a part of that and the fact that she sort of had to bottle up and move on and she has this back and forth kind of fucked up relationship with comedian where she kind of hates him and is ashamed of you know what she ended up doing which is having consensual sex with him like 10 years later and she hates herself for that and she hates being reminded of that and I think in a weird sort of way I guess I could not speaking of somebody who's gone through a lot of this stuff but has probably known people that have is it isn't always clear that people don't always have the reaction they should have right
4: and and speaking to the stockholm syndrome thing i mean there's that interview section in the yeah. in the between episodes things where where it's basically yes this is stockholm syndrome happening here she's totally being pushed around and and you know, and just totally being fucked over by everybody else in that group because she was there to make them look better. And it, it was it was horrible.
0: Her job was to essentially be cover for a gay member while having a fake relationship with him. Yeah. And it's clear in that interview that she is totally making excuses for what happened to her. Absolutely. And it's, I don't think it's ever treated like it's healthy or it's it's. Something that's good, because even when Laurie at the end of the story does talk to her mother and reconnects and talks about it, the first thing Sally does is kind of break down and is just horribly ashamed of what she did. Like, how could I sleep with this guy? He's a monster. Right. And she has such conflicted, fucked up feelings about this guy, who really is just a terrible person. And the book makes no bones about it. Rorschach does hand-waving over it at the beginning when... Uh, Lori actually calls Rorschach out and said, you know, that asshole that you're talking about who was murdered, he tried to rape my mom. And Rorschach says something like, it's not my job to question the moral lapses of men who die in the service of their country. She's like, what the fuck? Moral. I'm sorry. Rape is a moral lapse. Fuck you. And so I don't think it's that the book takes that stance. I think that the book. Goes in some fucked up direction. So I, didn't, but I could definitely see how somebody would be really bothered by that because it's not something that these stories ever really do.
4: There were two things that gave me pause. It was that, and then the whole Doctor Manhattan when he started dating. Uh...
0: Oh, an underage girl, Lori. She was 16 when he started dating her. I think he was like 40. Yeah. Uh,
3: Yeah. I
1: I can see that as just a window into his his degrading uh, connection to humanity, right? As you understand that after a certain point in time, he could have been a sensitive and considerate and moral person. And because of the, I guess, the sort of platonic temptation of having absolute power he becomes more and more distanced from people up until leaving the planet entirely and giving up on humanity so that makes sense in the progression of his character and when you look at
0: dr manhattan too, when Lori starts chewing out rorschach over the moral lapses question she's like oh, fuck you and she just says john get him out of here notice that john doesn't react to Lori being upset with rorschach in a way that says like he understands it he says you seem to be upsetting Lori. i think you should go yeah Like it's not like he really understands. He's that distanced from it.
4: Oddly enough, he's the he's supposed to be the a human character in Watchmen. I don't think he's the flattest character in Watchmen by any means. Oh, who? Uh, I refer to born of parents from the planet Nietzsche. It's Will to Power, man. (laughs) Otherwise, Ozymandias. I really don't like that character. I mean, I I just don't. I don't like the character as an enemy. I just didn't care. It was the least interesting part of the book for me, because uh, it's literally it just this. His whole story is will to well, Is by.
1: isn't that an inversion on superhero comics? Isn't the aren't the villains usually one, the ones that come in and give real color to the universe? Because the heroes are usually have one. they one of one note, and they they have one task, and they're there. And it's the villains who really give the spice and the flavor to the stories that go on there. Am I right? Usually that's the way. That's the way they've typically done it with Batman stories.
0: I don't know, uh, Rob. How you do you me. how do you look at uh, Ozzy Mandius?
2: Considering the plot hinges so much on his actions, he gets the least amount. We get we get the least amount of time with him. I mean, we there's that you know at the end the extended flashback where we sort of follow him on his Lost Horizon esque journey, right. which yeah. I really I I really liked because I'm just a sucker. Much like Mike, you've said you're a sucker for stories of you know. Giant people, you know, giant groups of people going, seize them and stuff yes. like that. I, I I, am a sucker for any guy going on a spiritual journey, I guess, because I'm too chicken shit to do it on my own. <laughs> but I mean, it's like the, the razor's edge or lost to rise and anything of like a guy going off and finding himself like that, that really appeals to me. So I like that part of it. But, you know, you think about the Dr. Manhattan gets several whole issues just to him and Rorschach gets several issues just to him. And so does Night Owl. And so does Sally ozymandias really doesn't get that for the most part and yet the story hinges on him now i know part of that is i think that's alan Moore doing just a classic misdirection yeah because you're you're thinking that ozymandias is is a peripheral character and then of course at the end spoiler alert he's the thing that the whole the whole story is turning on but it yeah you are you do have to kind of fill in some of the gaps on on that guy because you're just like well i just don't i just don't know him as much as i know these other characters I think I
0: got more out of Ozymandias' characters, like you mentioned, on the reread, because he can't reveal that much over the course of it without giving the plot away. So, But you see those little decisions that he's making once you know in retrospect these are the moments that changed him, and you start watching the story with his character in mind. It's kind of watching a movie and thinking, okay, well, I'm going to watch the movie aliens but watch it from the perspective of that random marine and you pay hyper attention to what that one marine is doing (laughs) you i think if you do that with ozymandias and you know the plot reveal and head if a lot of that stuff does jump out more but i can see definitely and i they definitely fucked him up more than anyone else when they adapted the movie uh we can put a cork in that shake it really hard and throw it in the corner because we're going to come back to that later okay but Sam, I okay. I'm just gonna say I apologize, Sam. That is the second Zack Snyder movie I have required you to watch for the show. I am, I, I am withholding my statements
4: until we are officially at the movie
0: part. Okay, uh, but I mean,
4: Ozymandias, is 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 he's not a character. Mm-hmm. I, I I find I I found his uh, you know, I hate to disagree with Rob because I also kind of like the spiritual journey trope, but. Uh, I, he's, he's there to be plot. He's not there to be character. The other folks are characters. He's, he is the theoretical enemy. They don't really have to pay attention to him because this is the thing about superheroes. Um, I thought they could, you know, I mean, the very idea was fun. I'd like, I, you know, but it just, he's flat. He doesn't do anything. Is is it
1: because he doesn't break? Is he the only character that really never breaks? I think. You don't see him break, but I think you see him start to crack at the end. Well, you yeah. say he says, "I what I feel all I I felt feel them all essentially. I made myself feel them all." Yeah, um, but he celebrates. He goes, "We I did it, is what he, he did says. It. Uh, and, and but I don't feel like he breaks in the way that literally every other character breaks yeah. from the situation.
0: Yeah, every single character in Watchmen, I think, maybe with the exception of John, breaks down in tears at some point. With Ozymandias, it is tears of joy at the end. But I think there is something because this is one of the things that Watchmen does is it sets up this comic within a comic starting around the middle of it where there's a little boy outside of a newsstand reading a pirate comic that's about this guy who, in the name of the greater good, keeps doing worse and worse things to try to save his family and ends up becoming the villain himself. And near the end of the story, uh, John Osterman, Dr. Manhattan, is talking to Ozymandias after his plans come to fruition. The world is backing away from civil war. And he wants validation from John. I did the right thing, didn't I? I did the right thing. And he says, I keep having these nightmares about myself swimming towards this ship. And that's the ending of that pirate story. Right. It's definitely drawing that analogy that he's not breaking yet, but that breakage is imminent. And he's not going to survive the weight of all these deaths on his conscience. You just haven't seen it yet.
1: Can I also note that the inclusion of the Black Freighter... Uh, story is fascinating because it's another facet of the universe where superheroes are real, so therefore there aren't actually superhero com- comics, there are pirate comics. Yes.
4: I was actually going through through the story, and about by the, the third time the Black Freighter story shows up, I just started wondering, did, did Alan Moore really, did he just want to make a pirate comic and came <laughs> up with this whole Watchmen thing in order to create a situation where a pirate comic would make sense? Because... Holy shit, there's a lot of effort in that.
0: Yeah, it kind of reminds me a little bit of, uh, what's the name of that character that Kurt Vonnegut writes? Kilgore Trout. Kilgore Trout, yeah. Where he gives all of his story ideas that he doesn't want to flesh out to a fictional writer. I could sort of see that, but it's sort of, when you go back knowing what it's going to be, a lot of people who read Watchmen for the first time are like, what the fuck is the deal with this pirate comic? Why am I reading this pirate comic? Not realizing that it's a metaphor for the entire plot of the story. And it, it is interesting, though, but the idea that superheroes existed in real life, that suddenly Superman comes out in a comic book, and they mention Superman in the Hollis Mason autobiography. Right. That he came out in 1938 just the way he did in the real world, but instead of inspiring more and more superhero comic books, he inspired real-life people to put on comic costumes and go out and beat people up, and the shine came off the rose, I guess they say, and kids didn't want to have... You know the sort of adventures of these characters because they 've seen them already kind of muddied by fucked up cronups. ups, hmm. so they didn't take and and actually, one of the pieces of alternate history that I really loved in the book is they mentioned the comic book scare that happened in real life in the 1950s coming to nothing yeah. because of the existence of superheroes, who many of whom are government agents and the government, actually stepping in and saying, okay, to people like Frederick
1: Wortham, knock it the fuck off. We're <laughs> not going to let you take down superheroes. So, Which is why there are the Tijuana Bibles, right? Is that the only way you could ever have superheroes in them is a little illegal printings of stuff that are little subversive. Little porno comics yeah. that you see throughout. That's yeah.
0: little comics within comics that appear throughout this. And That's amazing.
1: That's actually one of the things that uh, heightens the stature of it and obviously is makes it a pinnacle of the medium is because it's so aware of itself as a medium that it layers co- its own medium within itself. It's like, it's great. It's amazing.
0: Then another thing I noticed about this book that makes it really unique, there are no sound effects in it. And I didn't notice that till the last time I read it. Hmm. That when you see Rorschach kick a door in, He kicks a door in and you just see the doorknob getting knocked off of the hinges. You just see it getting broken in. You don't see that when there's a phone ringing and the police go, will you answer that? There's no ring sound effect in the background. There's no sound effect to Dr. Manhattan uh, teleporting. There's no sound effect Hmm. to the monster at the end being sent into New York and killing everybody. There's no sound effect to getting punched. It's kind of amazing that it has the confidence to let the art speak for itself.
4: I uh, this brings me to a a a question that I have, and uh, maybe Robert can answer this one for me. What uh, you're right, no sound effects. That was nice. Uh, Thing I didn't get. What's with the random bolding of words in the in the text bubbles? Why do comics do that, and why does Watchmen do it in this way? It it ends up with me reading it in a really like reading the dialogue in an incredibly unnatural way. I never really
2: thought about that. I, I assume <laughs> it's trying to replicate how people talk. Uh, I never, you know. I mean, I recognized that there were no sound effects. I think on the second pass, I was like, "Huh, wow." I just realized that. Yeah, there's no kabooms. There's no nothing in here. Uh, but uh, yeah, I, was that distracting? Did that seem like that throw you off?
4: Uh, on the first reading, yeah, I, I had to. I had to actually. I was like, "What is going on here?" And I, I had to like. Uh, actually expend effort to stop looking at bold to stop noticing the bold and once i managed to to do that uh the dialogue suddenly it it stopped being an ed wood movie and turned into something much better
0: i think i'm just used to it it's a comic book thing and i know that for the longest time yeah, yeah. yeah for the longest time comic books would do this thing where they just wrote in all caps I mean, they've changed that in recent years where they actually have typography rather than handwritten. There was a guy whose job was the letterer, and yeah. he wrote out the, the entire thing. Actually, Comic Sans, the most hated font of all time, is based on... <laughs> I think it was Len Wein um, who actually lettered Watchmen. I may be incorrect on that. But somebody who created the Comic Sans thing said he based it on Watchmen's uh, font and the handwriting of Len Wein. And Len Wein says, do not fucking attach me to that font. <laughs> but... When you only had all caps and you only had handwriting, I think the bolding of certain words was to accommodate things that you would normally do in writing, like, say, italics and and other things that it's coming up with its own language to adapt to its own limitations. And I think Mm. that it's a bit more nuanced in in newer comics than this. Like, they actually have upper and lower case letters in comic books nowadays that you don't see back in the day and I think you see more italics. I think some of the things in that are kind of cool, like you notice that uh, Dr. Manhattan's dialogue bubbles are blue. Yeah. And I, don't, I have no idea what blue fucking sounds like. Yeah. <laughs> it's the same thing. Dr. Fate, who's sort of a superhero wizard guy with a cool golden helmet, has these crazy word bubbles where there's this outline, like a yellow border that's kind of angular outside. Of, I have no idea what that sounds like, but it sounds spooky probably.
4: Well, I, I like that stuff, like the Rorschach in prison and the Rorschach... Being Rorschach because uh, he has a
0: squiggly word bubbles because he has
4: squiggly word bubbles that that absolutely made sense to me it was the it was the bolding thing
2: I had to suppress now I, I I be I'm sorry go no ahead. go ahead go ahead I be I could be completely pulling this out of some orifice but I'm gonna be, I'm gonna believe that the bolding just came from the fact that when comics were hand lettered as Mike mess Mike mentioned doing italics would have been impossible by hand but bolding you could just use a different pen nib to do mm-hmm. the lettering. Yeah. And I think that's where I'm going to bet that's where that came from. Cause I've, you know, I, I'm a graduate of the Joe Kubert school and I had to letter a lot of my own projects and just doing them, just doing them legibly was hard enough. I can't imagine having to do italics. That would have driven me insane.
1: Can, can I, uh, mention something that I think we sort of missed on the, on the, uh, comic books versus something else, uh, ver- comic book, comic booky stuff versus a comic book is trying not to be a comic book. Um, that was actually a sentence uh the the thing that you wouldn't get unless you actually put your eyes on the text is how f- sophisticated the 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 prose actually is how in how incredibly uh how incredibly ornate some of the text actually is and and how poetic Alan Moore can be as a writer and I'll offer one of my one of my overriding criticisms of the book, which is um I think. Especially in the sections where the epilogues with the text at the end, I think most of that stuff is written with just too much Alan Moore voice. I think that cha- most of the characters don't have an Alan Moore like voice. This is a problem with all of Neil Stevenson. You mean characters slow and too. spooky? Yes, no, but I mean over overly overly <laughs> garish and ornate and too too good of a vocabulary. Um, uh, but by and large, his prose is absolutely beautiful. Like uh, like this is the one thing I I don't know why it struck me so much. It's part of um, Watchmen's origin story excuse me Dr. Manhattan's origin story where he finally reassembles himself to the people in the cafeteria and uh, and the description is their bleached faces stare up at me pale and insubstantial in the sudden flare of ultraviolet sunburn in November like he's writing motherfucking haikus. With yeah. these descriptions, and it's mind blowing. It's yeah. amazing. I, if I was to draw a comparison to literature, the the analog that I would draw would be like Thomas Pinchon. Like that's how dense and how am- amazingly poetic it can be.
4: That overlaps into a, a question and a criticism question that I had specifically about the Doctor Manhattan uh, origin story is mm-hmm. the the literary quality of uh of that you know the writing, the story, the way the story is told, the poetic nature of it. Uh, I mean, it's incredibly complex and incredibly compelling um, in in terms of, of literature. But in terms of the visual side of it, the art, it's incredibly linear. It looks like just any other episode right. or uh, issue. And I'm, I was really surprised by that because isn't Dave Gibbons known for being kind of experimental now and again?
0: Yeah, he is. Um, I think one of the things that Watchmen does, and maybe this may be something that kind of goes against the flow of what you might have been expecting is that Watchmen was written with the nine panel grid in mind that a lot of comics and even a lot of really good comic artists sometimes fail in this regard, which is that comics in a weird sort of way are kind of a language that if you grow up reading them, you kind of instinctively know where your eye is supposed to go next. And the model in Watchmen is like the simplest one in the world that You go left to right, top to bottom. Occasionally you get one really big panel, but I don't think there's ever a place in the book where you get confused on where you're supposed to go next. And I know Watchmen uh, is a little bit different than Promethea, which is another thing that Alan Moore did, where it actually has a full-page spread of both pages, two characters walking around literally a Mobius strip. Hmm. and they can actually have this conversation, and the reader can start anywhere on the page they want and just follow them in the direction that they're walking. And I know that's a really experimental thing. I think with Watchmen there was a deliberate need to make it accessible, and that may have in some ways undermined what you wanted to get out of that thing because how is it that Dr. Manhattan perceives time? It's a lot like the Trolfamadorians in Slaughterhouse-Five. Yes. Mm -hmm. Where the idea that time is this elaborate jewel and that most of us poor mortals only look at one facet of it at a time in a specific order, but he has this ability to look at all of it, that he can perceive all moments of his time, and part of him losing his humanity comes from the fact that he's not surprised by anything.
1: Yeah, that that atemporal storytelling leads me to believe that Alan Moore probably did read a lot of... Robert Anton Wilson, when he was probably young. Probably. But on the nine panel stuff, because Mike, you and I were just sort of comparing our notes about things we noticed. I actually think that the nine panel thing lends itself to my interpretation, which is that Gibbons decided on a lot of the composition and the transition to look more filmic. Like we have definitely things that look as if they are part of one continuous shot where you're seeing a snapshot of a one continuous scene and other things that look like a camera push in for example. So I think it I think it it apes a lot of composition tricks from from films and it does actually look like a film on nine panel uh, nine panel page.
4: But if I want to see a film, I'll see a film. If I want to read a book, I'll read a book. I really feel like one of the things I love about comics, uh one of the things that even though I hate about 89 90% of everything done in the medium mm-hmm. is that it allows you to do things like this. And I kind of felt like, and I I knew that that uh, the, when the Dr. Manhattan story came up, it was going to be about his, uh, a major theme was going to be his perception of time. Mm-hmm. And I was really looking forward to that, because it's like, I want to see what Alan Moore does with this. I want to see how the art looks. And it was, like I said, it, it was incredibly complex and incredibly compelling uh, from a literature standpoint, but I, I felt like it was a missed opportunity in the art. Uh, you
0: wanted to be more experimental, I, I less did. linear.
4: I did. Okay. and um, And that's just me i guess but aside
1: from compositionally it's not a very linear story no it is it's all not. over the map yeah in
0: a weird sort it. of way you can say that Watchmen is sort of written from a dr manhattan perspective that there is kind of this spine of a story but we are looking at bits and pieces and sometimes you only see one thing at a time and but when you go back and reread it and you're sort of viewing it like Dr. Manhattan as this one large elaborate jewel, you'll look at other scenes and see things happening in the background that you don't focus on. Like during the failed crime buster superhero team moment in the 60s, you know, you're focusing on the argument between comedian and everyone else. But in the background, you see uh, Lori and Dr. Manhattan making eyes at each other and Janie Slater, who is uh, Dr. Manhattan's current girlfriend at that moment, getting pissed at him. And you see them kind of arguing. And those things are still there in the background. Yeah. You can also see that Rorschach, before he really goes fully off the wagon and becomes a real nut bar, uh, the only scene that you see with him prior to his mental breakdown completely is during that crime buster scene. If you notice, he's a lot more immaculately dressed. His coat is open. He doesn't have frayed edges on his, his sleeves. He's not covered in muck. He probably doesn't smell yet. <laughs> and he speaks in complete sentences. and he doesn't have squiggly word bubbles yet. And those are the sort of things that you, if you were reading it in a linear sense and you didn't know what was going to happen, you might think that was a mistake. That, oh, what happened to the letterer? Don't they know that's not how Rorschach talks? But when you look at it like a jewel, you say, wait a minute, I can fit this into a narrative because I have all of these individual pieces and I can say, oh, that's because that hasn't happened yet. And that's the stuff that I really like in Watchmen. Uh, And I think mentioning, like you said, Sam, if I want to watch a film, I'll watch a film. One of the things that a comic can do that a movie can never do is show show two simultaneous moments at the same time. You can see this elaborate thing that the entire page, rather than being a moment you watch one at a time like a film, I can look at it and stand back and see a piece of art that has nine pictures in it. Like when you see Rorschach go to question Moloch at his house – the building next to Moloch's house, his apartment, is like a—it's like a nightclub or a drug story type right. logo on it, and it's like called the Rum Runners, and has this flashing neon sign that's constantly blaring through Moloch's window. So you get this great panel checkerboard grid where it's like bright red light, dark, bright red light, dark. And it forms this elaborate pattern when you take a look back and the shadows change in it. It's not just the color is throwing red on it. It suddenly becomes bright and the light becomes kind of spooky because it's coming in behind somebody from outside the window.
1: Yeah, and it's actually an element that's serving to enhance sort of the, da- the danger and the dist- despair of Comedian as he's breaking down, too. You know, yeah, like, it, it's, oh, it's, it's great. amazingly layered.
0: So I love that sort of stuff. We sometimes see elements where the images on Rorschach's mask become images that we see in the world. Um, let's talk about Rorschach, because I think that he's one of those characters that gets really focused on, for whatever reason, we haven't really focused on him in the story. And a lot of the stuff I, I hear about Rorschach and the stuff I find the most fascinating is the misdirected fandom that gets thrown in his direction. That Rorschach is not supposed to be an aspirational character. And when Alan Moore finished this book and it got really popular, he'd do signings and people would show up signing it saying it would be a better world if we had some more guys like Rorschach in it. (laughs) So let's just give the audience an idea of why that's a fucking terrifying notion. For one, he's fucking creepy. (laughs) He probably smells. And several times he breaks into his friend's house, eats out of his fridge and threatens him. Uh, he also has really creepy issues with women. Like, when they break him out of prison, Dan and Lori, and Lori and Dan are back in costume for the first time in forever. Lori's costume, which, by the way, is revealing because superheroes. Yeah. Uh, Rorschach looks at them and goes, Dan, good to see you in uniform. Good to see you too, Miss Jaspachek. Never <laughs> did like your uniform. And it's just, oh man, there's so many weird fucking things with this dude. And I think a
1: lot of it is that He's not I really mean, and he's also devoid of any real emotion. Even when he's at the at about to be murdered in the prison, he is stone-faced. He's in t- with dispatching other people's lives, you know. And I know someone you compared him to before we
0: were talking today. <laughs> <Right>. Travis Bickle.
1: <laughs> yeah, he's he's a little bit he's a little bit Travis Bickle. He's a little bit uh John Doe from 7. John Doe from 7. He's a little bit uh Death Wish. Uh, Death Wish. Yes, Charles Bronson from Death Wish. Yeah, there's. Oh man,
0: and he's constantly reading out of his weird right wing conspiracy magazines. And... Yeah.
4: Well, it reminds me of when we were at uh, Jet City Comic Con, uh,
3: <laughs> <laughs> where we were all
4: sitting there, and and the, the you know this guy wearing uh, you know uh, a trucker hat and stuff and comes up and just starts talking about us. That uh, started talking at politics about it at us. He's like, oh, "You guys look like people who do who like." don't like obama we all three of us say something and
0: uh cue awkward silence cue
4: awkward silence yeah it's it's um i, I imagine people who like rorschach are are those people <laughs> and and i think it's interesting that uh the the characters he writes that uh that uh Ellen moore finds terrifying when people are fans of him are exactly the characters frank miller wants
0: you to like yeah <laughs>
1: Oh my god. I, yeah. I made the example of how there was someone who posted on George R R Martin's message board because he has one uh about how they thought that uh the the mountain oh the no, excuse me excuse me the the hound was a sexy character and that they it was the character they were in love with and George Martin <laughs> uh replied to this and he said he's a monster uh and he was never intended to never i never wrote him to intend that um and the person replied back to him saying it doesn't matter what you say i still think he's the sexiest character in game of thrones you know there's that way that people can latch on to obsession of things that are seriously disturbing yeah i can, I can understand Roshak, yeah
0: i can i won't deny that he's a compelling character the hound is a compelling character gordon gecko is a compelling character but it doesn't mean he's the good guy and i think that this is the same thing i meet people every so often on the internet who really think that dr doom has it right he's a dictator and his name is fucking dr doom <laughs> i you know, yeah it's it's this weird thing that i think that people kind of miss the point and this kind of led to the second thing and i know we talked about this a bit before but the the impact that Watchmen had on the comic book medium is that a lot of people started writing Rorschach, but writing him in a world that accommodated him and thought that he was awesome rather than a creep who dig through your garbage and read conspiracy newspapers. And pretty soon everyone had spikes and was monologuing their weird Travis Bickle stuff about how crime is a disease and I'm the cure and I'm going to stand on the rooftop and watch it lap around my waist. (laughs) To
4: the point where when I was watching the movie... Uh, Becky walked in on a scene with Rorschach and she thought I was watching The Dark Knight.
0: Yeah. <laughs> Grumbly mouth mo- uh, monologue men. Yeah. It's the thing, you know. And Rob, I don't know. Uh, do you think that the Watchmen series, I mean, there's been this kind of backlash, do you think? I don't know. Did it take over the comic book medium as much as I feel it did or am I just overplaying this?
2: I don't feel like, I feel like some of the, as is usual, some of the, you know, worse elements of Watchmen are the more misunderstood ones of took over. Yeah. I would agree that, you know, Rorschach got lumped in with the kind of like Wolverine, I'm uh, Punisher, you know, I'm the, you know, I'm the worst of the work, you know, that kind of thing. I think people, but, uh, I, I, I don't know. I mean, it, I, I don't, I don't know if it's Quentin Tarantino is the one that came up with this theory, but I've heard him espouse it where he said, you know, like King Kong, is a movie about racism and then the people that made king kong would say no it isn't that's not what it's about and he would say and his argument is well that may have been the movie you thought you were making but the movie you did make is about racism and (laughs) i i don't think it's i don't think it's completely fair for someone like alan moore to say you should hate rorschach because he's not the hero he gave rorschach a lot of stuff that made him very compelling and very sympathetic and so you can't help it, and and plus he's basically the intro. The, your your your, he's the intro, introduction to this world, his point of view. That it's hard to then just say, but but, but I'm supposed to hate him, because I I you know I mean look I mean I don't know I mean I don't want to live in the world of Watchmen, <laughs> but I am also sympathetic to his plight because the I mean he's indefatigable, and I think a lot of people like that is you know he's the one pressing on to this mission despite the fact everybody's blowing him off i mean dan dryberg is like no there's nothing going on and man dr manhattan you know as you mentioned uh, transports him out of the room in the mid-sentence and all that stuff and so it's it's i don't know Worshak is more sympathetic to me in the comic than i know that he's supposed to be but i can't help it that he just he is well he has a tragic just- is a tragic backdrop. I mean, yeah. Right. Was... That too. I mean, you, you really do. I mean, what else did you expect from the guy com- coming from where he came from? And, and fact that Alan Moore gives Warshak the ultimate sympathetic exit. Well, mm-hmm. is there I a know. difference
4: between sympathizing with a character and identifying with a character though?
1: Sure. Sure. Yeah. No, y- 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 yes, there is. And I don't think that he's requiring you to, uh, to, uh, identify with him. Yeah. All right. At all, at all, he's he's an entrance he's an entrance to the story, but he's not the sole lens through which you but view it.
4: Since Rob is is apparently the the guy with the the, the highest opinion of of uh, Rorschach, I I I think Rorschach is monstrous. I think he's horrible. Um, but because this this is what the kind of thing that Ellen Moore does the nature of his brokenness and how he got to be where he he uh where he is makes him an object of empathy and pity rather than an object of hate
0: yeah i think he's a bit gollumy in that i don't think gollum is pathetic enough that you have that moment of sort of revulsion with him but you also feel pity yeah he has a lot of gollumy qualities but one of them isn't being pathetic it's that he comes across as someone who's very stalwart in his beliefs, as misguided and weird and messed up. as He has a lot of daddy issues. He has an absent father that he's built up as being this wonderful guy. And mostly just as a contrast to his fucking horrible mother. He's and The thing that helped put him along the path was the, what is her name, Kitty Genovese? who was an actual person in New York who was, I believe, murdered and raped in an alleyway, and people actually witnessed the whole thing and did nothing from their windows, and how that helps propel him along that line. And the final thing being a kidnapping case that he goes through in the 1970s where... He witnesses something just fucking horrible with the the little girl being butchered, and it just makes him snap. And instead of brutalizing him and handcuffing him, he starts doing things like throwing him down elevator shafts and setting him on fire. And it's like real, like, seven-type shit. It's like it would actually be easier to see him as a non-psychopath if he just used a handgun, but he doesn't. It's got to be more ornate than that. It's it's like serial killer murders that yeah. he does.
2: I. I- I don't mean to suggest that Rorschach is admirable just because I don't want that kind of thing recorded for posterity. But, uh, <laughs> it just, I just mean that Alan Moore gives Rorschach some of the series' most fi- finest moments, some of its most powerful moments. And I think you can't help but come away with a view of Rorschach that I don't necessarily think Alan Moore wanted you to. But at the same time, you gave him – I mean I, – I don't know. I, I mean, the scene where he goes into the bar and he you know, wants information from that guy and that guy basically tells him to go F himself and he breaks the finger. And it's, it's the kind of thing where, like, I, I forget which one of you said, but it was sort of in for a penny, in for a pound kind of thing, where you're almost like, look, if you're going to be a superhero that messes people up for information, just be Rorschach. Break <laughs> fingers. Don't be a pussy like Batman and <laughs> dangle people off of things with break hands i mean if you're gonna like if you're gonna go that far do it you know and and again i'm not saying that's admirable but at the same time i think alan moore has a sympathy for rorschach and again i think that final scene is to me very instructive of how he felt about rorschach that all of for all of rorschach's supposedly rigid moral code he breaks down at the face of what of what he's of of, of the plan when he realizes the scope of it and how it might actually work. He himself breaks all that down and and allows himself to be immolated because he can't bring himself to to bring, you know, to bring the whole thing uh, crumbling down. And I, I just think that Alan Moore was more sympathetic and more sort of proud of Rorschach than maybe he was comfortable with. And it's not his fault entirely that people get the wrong message. I mean, I haven't seen the film but, you know, uh, a lot of people came away from American Sniper with the idea of, isn't it cool to kill Muslims? Yeah. And I That's can only imagine
4: the comparison. I, mm. Yeah.
2: And I can I can only imagine that Clint Eastwood, who, you know, for all of his looniness with the Barack Obama and the invisible chair thing, <laughs> is it is a, is a fairly moderate guy. Got to be pretty horrified at that. You yeah. know, you got to read that and go, "Oh my God, what the hell did it?" And you know, again, I haven't seen the film, so I can't speak to that. But at the same time, I could say, "Well, uh, geez, did I make that? I don't think I did." I don't, you know, I'm not it's not my it's not my fault that a couple of morons completely wrong message from this movie. <laughs> yeah, so you know, there it's it's kind of I, I sort of feel that way a little bit about people that are. I mean, I don't know. I don't necessarily want to drag this into a, pol- a political discussion because I just don't. But yeah. It's there are, there when I meet people at Comic Cons that are dressed in superhero costumes, but then are like super hard right wing. And I just wonder, what do you think you're dressed as? <laughs> what, 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 do you have any idea what you're dressed as? You're espousing this hatred for poor people and for the little people. And yet you're dressed as Superman. I was like, <laughs> what? What is the cognitive dissonance here? At I mean, least dress like dis- the comedian. Yeah, I mean, you know, right. I mean, so I, I again, I'm not at all saying I'm sympathetic to Warshak. It's yeah. just he's given a lot of great moments in that book, and you can't help but sort of get swept up in it a little bit because it's it's just, you know, Alan Moore chose that character to present a lot of some of the the, the great the great the great bits. Hmm.
0: Okay, I think that's a great place to end the main part of our discussion. Let's take a quick break, and we'll be right back with High Point, Low Point. And we are back. It's time for High Point, Low Point. We're talking Watchmen. This is where we get to the top of the mountain, the bottom of the barrel. Sam, what is a low point for Watchmen? Three and a half fucking hours. (laughs) Of what, Sam?
4: Three and a half hours. This is the second Zack Snyder movie you've made me fucking watch for the show. What the hell? I have decided I am never watching a movie uh, for this show ever again, unless you're with me and you experience the same pain I do, or I at least get a car battery and some
0: jumper cables. So this means you're not seeing Batman v Superman. No. <laughs> okay.
2: <laughs> Holy shit! I'm really looking. I'm really looking forward to the Radio versus the Martians episode on the Alza Gahool. That ought to be. Really good.
4: <laughs> Holy cats! I, 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 I. I it has the pace of molasses. It uh, uh it's it's got too much 300 in my dessert topping. It's <laughs> oh my god like it totally misses the point. I just watched like I watched I read the book and then a week later I saw the movie and the the book is a masterpiece. And the movie's a skid mark on the Mona Lisa. I mean, it it just wow. seems to miss it so hard, and it's so depressing because it's so obvious that he really loves what he's doing. Three and a half hours. Yeah. I wouldn't even watch the four-hour cut of the Dune movie. And I watched this. <laughs>
1: thing. Oh, oh, oh my can, God! Can I give you uh, my five-word uh, my five-word review of the movie? Nerds mourn lack of squid. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I, I'm, I'm with you, Sam. And partially
0: I, I threw this at your, at your direction because I kind of wanted that reaction. Okay, I wanted you to feel my pain because <laughs> I went in wanting to really love that movie. I, I've never seen something aggressively miss the point the way The Watchman did. Like you said, I really think Zack Snyder loves the source material. Because if he didn't, why would the 1985 setting be there? Why would he push for an R rating? Why would he get the little details like the Gunga Diner and the New Frontiersman? And Bubastus, when you take out the squid, Bubastus makes no sense. Yeah. But he still put Bubastus, the, the lynx creature, in the movie. Yeah. I, um,
4: and sp- the thing that ruined like the, the most salient point for me that, that he fucked up, which uh, totally plays into what Rob was saying about Rorschach, was the moment where Rorschach fucking breaks, mm-hmm. and the way they do it in the comic book is fucking terrifying, mm-hmm. and he totally and he, and he nerfs it in the movie, and it totally it, it takes away. Rorschach doesn't seem nearly as scary in the movie as he does uh, as he does in the comic book, and not only because I thought he was Danny Bonaducci.
0: <laughs> <laughs> that is terrifying. <laughs>
4: Because uh, I did. And then they're like, wait, no, that's not him.
0: To make you happy.
4: <laughs>
3: <laughs>
4: um I, but okay, let's say some nice things about it. Uh well I'll say one nice thing about it. Once again,
0: horrible direction.
1: Yeah casting was pretty good. I know! I'm happy with the casting, actually.
0: Yeah. Patrick Wilson is so good at Dan Dryberg. Yeah. It's like, and then I said this about a lot of characters, put him in a good movie. Yeah. It's, you know, I really like him as Dan Dryberg. I actually like Jeffrey Dean Morgan as the comedian. I think he was having fun with being an AIM World piece of shit. Yeah. Um, I, Jackie Earl Haley, if he downplayed the voice, I'd actually much rather see Michael Emerson. Ah. Who hmm. played uh, Ben on Lost. Because he's the right height, he's the right age, and he sounds fucking spooky.
4: Um, <laughs> uh, man, and Matt Frewer can't catch a fucking
0: break. And the horrible fucking uh, prosthetics in this movie. Why does Max Headroom have elf ears? <laughs> yeah. What was the point of that? It's Again, he wants it to look like the book. And the drawing of Moloch... Has kind of weird, kind of pointyish ears. Which, in he's a drawing, it doesn't stand out. But if you're not a f- fan of the source material, you're like, "Why is there a fucking goblet in this movie?" Yeah. Uh,
1: can can <laughs> I? Can I? If you, when while we're heaping sh- piles of shit on Zack Snyder's movie, can I tell you that uh, I don't, I don't dislike it as much as you guys do. I think I've watched it quite a few times. I understand that it misses the point, but my favorite part about the movie is the. Philip Glass uh, themed um, origin story for Dr. Manhattan, which I think is done incredibly well. I know. It's... It is an incredibly compelling, like 10 minute sequence, could stand out totally on its own because of how good it is and also how fo- closely it follows that issue. So yeah.
4: I guess we're at a situation where uh, Zack Snyder is really good at making 10 minute films. Yeah. <laughs> because, like, the first 10 minutes of Man of Steel, I really liked. I liked the visuals, I liked the way it was done. Um, But then the Superman movie started and I wanted to die Um, where you're right. In the middle of this horrible slog of a movie, and it, it really goes on forever. The love scenes are awkward as fuck.
0: Oh my god, that goes on for like two minutes. You have a thirty-second to one-minute window to do a sex scene, yeah. and if you go beyond that window, you are doing softcore.
4: Yeah, and it, and we don't even have the 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 uh, control rods, if you will, of uh, Ozzy Mundias doing acrobatics. Yeah. uh which was
0: <laughs> great.
4: Yeah, uh, there's this a is a man in his forties. Yeah, uh, <laughs> but uh, so virile. <laughs> But uh, the pacing of Molasses, it was really hard to watch.
0: It's herky-jerky. It should have been an HBO miniseries that had 10 episodes.
4: And I I, I have to stress this point. Mm. What I really liked about, like I said, I see this as sort of superhero apologetics. But one of the reasons why it works as superhero apologetics is that, save for Dr. Manhattan, who's considered, you know, who's part of the outside context problem, every superhero in this comic is a human being, gets the crap beat out of them, you know they're human beings and then it's a Zack Snyder film and it's just off 300 and they're they're what the fuck are they the, robots yeah the
0: the, the foo stuff is stupid as shit they're punching through concrete at one point Yeah. there's a dude a comedian at the beginning rather than him just getting thrown out a window he gets into a elaborate fight where he's throwing knives and he gets his head punched through a marble countertop and he's not yeah. dead. Punching through a concrete wall. Uh, there's several times where, uh, God, Rashak is doing like parkour up the side of a building, and he's still a dude in his fucking 40s.
4: I, I mean, you can make the case for Ozzie Mendez because yes. he does that bullet catching thing at the end of the. So he is technically. You know, yeah, yeah, there is an
1: imp- improbable fight scene that he has with Rorschach and Night an- Owl at the end while monologuing his master plan. Yeah. Which is cool. But yeah And
0: again, this gets to the heart of what he misses about this story is that Watchmen was about taking these characters that we're used to seeing drawn like they're Jack Kirby. And putting them in a light that just can't help but be unflattering. Yeah. And he's dragging them back out and showing them in exactly the light we're used to in the movies, which is wirefu fighting, improbably clean fight choreography. Uh, Rorschach doesn't fall out of a window and get stomped by the cops. He gets up and fights them for like three minutes. Yeah. Doing crazy kung fu. And... Rorschach is not a Kung Fu guy. He knows how to fight, but mostly he sneaks up on you and strangles you in an alley.
4: Or breaks your finger when you're drinking.
0: Exactly. He fights you like Ted Bundy. He doesn't fight you like, you know, Jackie Chan. (laughs) You know, and Ted Bundy's not a guy who's fighting fen cops at once. He's a guy who drags you into an alley and does stuff to you. And that's exactly what Rorschach does. Yeah. And it... Oh my god, it hurts! It
4: and it's creepy because I mean I, I think it's time to mention the sixteen million million dollar blue dong in the room.
0: Yes, <laughs> this uh, this is a movie that has the kind of oh man CGI again
1: CGI. Yeah, yeah. Wh- why did he have to have the penis enlargement pills from the book? I have no idea. I don't yeah, know. I don't know why it was necessary. You know
4: what? Maybe what what but what, what kind of threw it off for me is that you had mentioned before I watched it that there was this moment where you were pretty sure. Uh, Dr. Manhattan was uh, in the middle of uh, getting really interested, if you will. He was starting to stand at attention. And so I was trying to find where that scene was. So I spent most, every time, every time he's on the screen with his dong, I'm looking at it. (laughs) It's like,
0: ah! It's that's the thing. This is the thing to mention about Dr. Manhattan is that as he distances himself from his humanity, he becomes his Don gets smaller. <laughs> 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 he, he actually wears less clothing to the point that by the 1980s, he just walks around naked, which
4: I, I thought was kind of cool.
0: Yeah, and in the book, you do see his penis several times, but it's drawn kind of like the statue of David. Yeah. In the movie, they make him kind of Arnold muscly. And he's got, like, a John Holmes penis. Yeah. <laughs> and it's a little distracting, because it's part of, no, this stuff is cool, this stuff is badass, our guy has a big blue penis, This our guy can kung fu all the cops, and it's trying to be super hip, but it misses the point that this isn't about characters being super cool and the world being a heightened reality, it's about dragging characters wearing an owl suit to the real world and going, yeah, that's kind of weird. But I, Dave actually, uh,
4: the guy on my show, actually said they spent $16 million rendering that penis.
0: This is insane. You know what? He has a real penis that you can put in the movie, and you don't have to spend sixty million dollars on it. You just paint it blue.
2: <laughs> I would have done it for half that. <laughs> <laughs>
4: and, but it reminds me of like the of the Final Fantasy movie where they start where they mentioned uh, you know how much money they spent rendering the hair to make the hair look natural, and then right. you get there and it looks like oh, it, it's like one piece of plastic. That did not look like a real penis. <laughs>
0: No, no. Oh, God. It doesn't
4: move like that. You That's know,
0: not how
2: the I, I...
4: It makes my penis... It makes a penis look like something out of a DOA
2: game. <laughs> <laughs> you were saying? <laughs> that makes me think of something. I remember when the, the, the movie was getting developed and they were moving forward with it. And I remember they were pushing early on that they were going so hard on the details. And they even bothered to get the, uh, the label on the sugar cubes right. That was the level of wow. detail. And I remember thinking that is a warning sign of nothing but bad, because to me, I could give a shit if you get all the little details right, if you don't get the basic story right. Thank you. Uh, Give give me the meat. Uh, I mean, to me, you know, like I don't care the fact that Gene Hackman in Superman, the movie is nothing like Lex Luthor, any version of Lex Luthor that had ever been seen in a Superman comic. But they got the idea of Lex Luthor right. But to me when I hear a movie start going on and on about how no expense was spared, oh we're going to have this this exact thing that we found. We flew it all the way from the hills of so and so to because it's only made of this kind of marble and will only be, that to me is sort of like surface level details. That's like an idiot's version of being faithful. That, is is getting to the detail and I, Zach Snyder version. Su- <laughs> yeah, fuck the sugar cubes. Yes. Give me Give me themes. That's what made Watchmen cool was the themes and the ideas it was presenting, not the fact that yeah, it was a particularly brand of sugar cube. So, God, who I, I
1: think one of the biggest thing, from what I said before, one of the biggest thing the movie suffers with, and it has to do with that, at the time they made the movie and the technology available to make said movie is that. Like I said, if you were reading this when it came out, it was an alternate it was a story about an alternate history yeah. of the present day. And now it is inescapably when you see it in 2006, 2010, whatever, it is now a CG action actionized version of a period piece that is also a comic book story. It- and it has other things that are layered on it that distract you from being able to uh, from being able to f- contextualize the story
4: it picks up a layer of kitsch that it didn't really serve the story at all
1: yeah well i mean and that, i think that's Zack snyder being unable to understand a movie that's trying to be an anti-superhero movie because he clearly wants to make gritty superhero movies
4: so um why did they change or why did Zack snyder or whoever was involved in writing this thing um why did they change? Why did they get rid of the squid?
1: I think too much th- setup. I think
0: yeah, that's probably it. I think that the, all the little pieces, the little pieces again, like giving all of the little New Yorkers, whether it's the psychologist or the cab drivers or any of that, a personality. That's the stuff that really makes it special. And they cut all of that stuff out. Same thing with Bubastis. Bubastis was a genetically altered lynx that is Ozymandias' pet. That was part of the lead up. That he was doing the research to make the squid, and he made a pet while he was doing it. And I think that when you cut all that stuff out, it feels kind of abrupt.
4: It removes, I think, one of the most striking images of the comic book, which, I mean, it's it's a it's a theme in, in the side art is, you know, the clock with the blood coming down on it and the clock ticking up. And, yeah. and then you get to it and, and the city has gone insane and died in insanity. And so you have these bodies piled up upon each other. It... it
0: it's Lovecraftian.
4: It's Lovecraftian. Yeah. He didn't just kill them. He took he took away their identity and then he killed them. And that and that made it terrifying. And not only, and he was very clear that with the psychic blast that the squid thing was going to give off, that this was going to be uh, an enemy that people would believe for a very long time because it was implanted in their very minds. It made the concept of a foreign you know of of an alien invasion much more believable to me. And when you just make it oh Doctor Manhattan's an asshole now,
3: <laughs>
4: uh. Okay, so we work together for 10 minutes, and then what?
0: Yeah. It fucking sucks, this movie. (laughs) So we are doing high point, low point. So, oh, God, that felt good to get out of our system, didn't it? (sighs) Rob, low point for Watchmen.
2: Uh, I actually don't hate the movie uh, the way the three of you apparently do. (laughs) Uh, I don't hate the movie. Continue. But my, my low point is... Both the movie and before Watchmen, mm. the, the, the the not because they're terrible because I actually didn't read one friggin' frame of Before Watchmen, uh, but the fact that they were easily both completely forgettable. Uh, I mean, has anyone talked about Watchmen the movie on any list of mo- of comic book movies? Has anyone ever mentioned Before Watchmen five minutes after the last issue was published? They're no. just instantly forgettable. And again, they might be good. I have no idea. I've never read them. But the fact that they were just completely forgotten to me is the ultimate insult to the Watchmen legacy because Watchmen casts a looming shadow over everything. And the fact that there were two adaptations or spin offs that were just, just completely dismissible. I mean, to me, if you're going to make a Watchmen movie or you're going to make a Watchmen series of prequels, you got to swing for the fences. you got to make a Heaven's Gate-sized, Dune-sized fuck-up. <laughs> you, can't, you cannot make a movie that people go, eh, that wasn't bad. Yeah. You, th- 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 to me, that's the ultimate insult of Watchmen. I, I saw Watchmen when it came out. My friends were so excited. And I watched it, and I remember liking it, but I just went, eh. And, then, and I never thought about it for two seconds after I left the theater. Hmm. And that is not what Watchmen deserves. And if you're going to make a movie of Watchmen, do it get terry gilliam and just go yeah. crazy just he, say hand oh. the guy 500 million and we're going to do a write down we know this is going to be a boondoggle but it'll be one for the ages but just to have something so disposable to me it seems the the ultimate insult to the source material
1: oh jesus a terry Christ. gilliam Watchmen is kind of like a uh It's kind of like a Yodorowski Dune sort of thing, right? Like what could have been a project that can never be because it's so insane. Uh, I have to piggyback. I'm sorry that I'm going to suck it up. My low point was shared with half of yours, which was before Watchmen. I actually read some of before Watchmen. I didn't read it all. Um, And it's trash, and it tarnishes the source material, and you you shouldn't read it. Unless unless you really like a specific brand of masochism, um, I would read it. Uh, You know, for me if something's good one don't sequel it two don't prequel it um and this basically does that i mean it, it takes it takes something and tarnishes there are origin stories for a series that doesn't care about origin stories because it's not that kind of comic book right um the only with the exception of dr manhattan who needed an origin story and uh with with what with alan moore's thing it was a you're joining our program, a regular scheduled program already in progress. And that's where you started the story. You didn't need to go back in any other time that he wasn't willing to give you to complete the story. It ended. Um, and reading through what I did of all six of the different permutations, they all have their own style, but they're all kitschy and forgettable. And really they, all, they only will survive by virtue of uh, the fact that they had a connection to the original story. And I think, you're right, Rob, They'll we're, we're going to figure out about them. Totally.
4: If, Uh, before I had to watch three and a half hours of nothing.
0: I'm sorry, okay? I'm sorry.
4: (laughs) Car battery and jumper cables, Mike. Oh, Um,
0: to my balls.
4: (laughs) (laughs) Uh, It was going to be before Watchmen, because I think Watchmen is is an example of what's best in comics, and before Watchmen is an example of what's worst in comics and everything I don't like. The other thing is it made me kind of hate the guy who wrote my favorite TV show.
0: Oh, yeah. that's right, J. Michael Straczynski. Yeah,
4: J. Michael Straczynski. He he did. He, you know, he was the guy behind Babylon Five, which is one of my favorite shows ever. And uh, and and he signed up for Before Watchmen, and like a lot of people were saying, "Dude, would you like it if somebody else took up the helm of Babylon 5? Like, no, that's totally different. It's nothing like that. You should shut up. <laughs> and I'm like. <laughs> Dude, you know, okay, it makes sense when you're the the underdog and you're kind of an asshole, but now you're established and you're still an asshole. Yeah. It doesn't look as cool anymore.
0: He kind of... The internet has not been a good tool for J. Michael's Spicinski. <laughs> but it was! Yeah. It was like
4: the first show that had a huge internet
0: following. It yeah. It had a whole
4: Usenet news group.
0: <sighs> That's, uh, Before Watchmen is such a great example of something that has no artistic possible motivation behind it. It's something that is entirely a commercial venture. Yeah. And... It was something that was created and they brought in a lot of comic book writers and artists that I love. J. Michael Straczynski is a good comic book writer when he's not writing Superman. What?
2: Darwin Cook is involved. Darwin fucking Oh. I
0: you know, Darwin Cook is one of those people, he does anything. He will scratch something on a cocktail napkin, I will pay three dollars for it. (laughs) I don't care. Yet, I wouldn't touch this. It was like, this series to me, I just don't want to be sullied by it, and it feels like if I buy it and I read it, I'm one of the 23 knives going into the back of Alan Moore. And
2: See, now, I didn't, I, I'm sorry, I don't buy the, I, I never bought the idea that Watchmen was sacrosanct because it wasn't being done by Alan Moore. Because Alan Moore has taken lots of characters, including Watchmen and Done things to his own purposes for them. I mean, that's that, you know, I mean, Lost Girls is taking someone else's characters and doing lots of crazy shit with them. So I didn't, I wasn't, I wasn't offended that Watchmen wasn't Alan Moore's property. I just wasn't interested in reading anything Watchmen not by Alan Moore. I wasn't inherently offended at the idea, uh, but uh, you know, so uh, yeah, I felt there was a little bit of a difference there. You know, yeah, I mean, I'll
0: I'll definitely concede that point. I think it wasn't so much that. Uh, It was Alan Moore not writing it. I think it gets into what my low point is. It was just another step in Alan Moore being royally fucked over. Hmm. And Alan, that's really what my low point comes from, is that the underside to loving comic books is that it's a history of a lot of great writers and artists getting royally, financially, and personally fucked over by these companies. They basically create these characters that last decades and make these companies literally billions of dollars billions with a B they they're on the front of lunch boxes and they're in movies and in cartoons and oftentimes you'll see these creators like Jack Kirby and Bill Finger and countless others who are living on like public incomes and who often need to go to Kickstarter or Indiegogo so they can get surgery for something and that's why something like the Hero Initiative which is a really really cool nonprofit, that's Basically about making sure that these people don't die of starvation after they create your favorite character. This is the the legacy that you kind of have to turn a blind eye to sometimes when you enjoy comic books. And Alan Moore was one of those guys. The difference is, is that Alan Moore didn't kind of buy into the... The notion of you just kind of take it and walk away. You got your check. You did your work for hire. Now fuck off. And he said no. Um, He created a deal for Watchmen that was a little bit different than the regular work for hire. Like, that's kind of the deal when you sign on to do something like Batman or Superman. You know I'm not going to own the characters I create for this. Though I'll get some licenses and they put them in a movie. Um, I'll get a check in the mail. But with Watchmen, they made a deal that was a little bit different. They said... We own Watchmen for a year. After we're done publishing it, because back then we didn't have everything in a graphic novel format, in a paperback or hardcover format. You got a couple series, like, say, the Dark Phoenix Saga for X-Men, and in this case, Watchmen, that got made into a trade paperback at all and sold in a bookstore. And the idea was, because comics had always been disposable, if you want to get an old store, you got to dig through the bins at a convention or at a comic book store that this stuff is going to go out of print. And after that year of it being out of print, the rights are going to revert to Alan Moore and Dave Gibbons again. But when they made that deal, DC Comics had no intention of ever letting Watchmen go out of print. They made it incredibly clear. And in fact, they started fucking Alan Moore over, even on top of things like royalties. Like there was a set of Watchmen pins, including the famous comedian pin with a blood splatter on it. And they were selling it. And Alan Moore said, hey, how about I get my check for that? And they go, oh, no, that's a promotional item, a promotional item that they were selling Mm -hmm. as merchandise. So Alan Moore kind of walked away from DC Comics after that. And even to the point when he ended up working for a company that got sold to DC Comics, he didn't even want a check with DC Comics name on it They had to create a separate company just to give Alan Moore paychecks. Uh, It was actually called Firewall Incorporated LLC or something. It was just like, we want to pay Alan Moore. And the reason Alan Moore didn't walk away is he didn't want to fuck over the careers of the artists working on that book. By screwing them over. He said, okay, I'll finish out my contract with this other company, but I'm not having anything in my house that says fucking DC on it.
1: That's so interesting. I'm sorry to break your point, but it makes more sense why Alan Moore said about the movie that he prefers to to criticize it from a position of ignorance. Yeah, he doesn't want yeah. anything with his movies. He doesn't want his name on it either. He
0: doesn't want his name, and he yeah. doesn't want money from it. He didn't get a dime from Watchmen or V for Vendetta, or I believe even from Hell. Uh, he says, whatever money you would have given me, Just give it to the guy who drew it. I don't want to see it. And he's kind of gone off to live in his magic cave and not deal with that (laughs) stuff. And and, uh, I think that the thing with Alan Moore, too, is that it got dragged back into it when before Watchmen got written. They actually said that we will give you the rights to Watchmen because we're done twisting money out of it. We've milked this, this cow as much as we can, and we're ready to give it back to you. But we'll do so only... If you publicly endorse our mini series of prequels, or write one, and <laughs> Alan Moore said, "Go fuck yourself," I don't. He doesn't want Watchmen anymore. I think all he sees with Watchmen is a memory of that time that he burned a lot of friendships hmm. and lost a lot of professional contacts and lost a lot of his love for making comics. Wow.
4: There's a reference here that that sort of fell on the floor that I want to pick up and and point at. Please. There is a charity. Yes. For people who created billion-dollar Disney properties. Yes. <laughs>
0: the Hero Initiative. It's, let,
4: that, let that one sit in your head for a minute and think about that.
0: Yeah. They had to sue even to get their name listed as created by. And even some of those people, because some creators, <laughs> Bob Kane, are giant assholes who actually maneuvered in such a way that they had it so their co-creator, Bill Finger, the real creator of Batman, couldn't get his name... On the creation. It's actually written in the contract that I am the sole creator of Batman. And by the way, I'll help you fuck over the guys who created Superman and testify against them in court for you. Bob Kane's a piece of shit. Um, yeah, the Hero Initiative is a great organization. Give them money because DC and Marvel won't. Because comic book writers need a sandwich. Seriously. And that's fucked up. Yeah, so digging ourselves out of that, and that's a fucking low point. There, let's go high. Let's talk about what is the best part of Watchmen. Not about people getting fucked over. Not about a bunch of bullshit movies and spinoffs <laughs> that are to take your money and erode your soul. Let's talk about the good stuff. Let's go into the heights of awesomeness. What is the high point of Watchmen, Rob Kelly? Uh,
2: I think I, you know, like as I said, I grew up. Uh, you know, I read Watchmen when it came out at the time um And in my mind, I cannot separate it from Batman: The Dark Knight Returns. Those two series came out within, I think, about six months of each other, and they seemed like mainstream comics was were, were going in a direction that was amazing and exciting. And I'm not going to suggest that. I, I, I want to make sure I say mainstream comics because it's. I don't want to suggest that there were not great comics being done. Independently, Cerebus and Love and Rockets, and certainly the Will I, anything Will Eisner ever touched.
3: Oh, God, but yeah. mainstream,
2: mm-hmm. mainstream comics seem to be going in a brave new direction. I mean, in my mind, you know, uh, The Dark Knight and Watchmen are to mainstream comics what Elvis and Dylan were to music in the 50s and 60s. They mm-hmm. were the mainstream acts that took these things in a new direction that made people go, What the fuck is this? And you know, there were people that, that, that you know, Bob Dylan ripped off from and there were people that Elvis ripped off from. Those people were never going to be huge. You know, you can argue back and forth of the of the, the morality of that. But, you know, rambling, rambling Jack Elliott was never going to be huge. You needed Bob Dylan to do it. And so I look at those things. And so my, my point that I'm and I do have one as I'm getting to it, is like <laughs> my favorite thing in Watchmen is the humanity that Alan Moore has for his characters. Every one of them even the ancillary characters and the scene in Watchmen where we're on the boat and it's got all those artists on it. You know, they're the ones making the giant squid monster. And one of the people, uh, two of the people, uh, a man and a woman have spirited off to like the cargo hold of this ship to have a a little midnight sex. Uh, And you know, it's clearly They've been commissioned by the government for this weird project. And even they don't know why they're there. And then, Uh, you know, he's, uh, the the man is on top and he pulls the blanket back and he sees dynamite behind the woman's head. And he realizes in that horrible moment that they've been set up and they're about to die. And he doesn't tell her uh, what he sees. And he holds her and the boat explodes and we see her drawings, I think the woman's drawings, float into the water. And it's Alan Moore has such a love for his characters. And I think about that Frank Miller in 1986 not the Frank Miller of now, oh. but the Frank Miller of 1986 loved his characters. And there was a sort of <laughs> I, I was a sensitive child. And I felt that as much as those two series were really, really badass experiments, they had an underlying humanity to them that I found very exciting. And I think those moments that Alan Moore brought to Watchmen are are still unraveled. And to me, that is among the many high points of that series. Uh, maybe the highest of the highs that Alan Moore just loves his character so much and gives even the most minor characters, someone you're only seeing for a couple of panels, he gives them a little moment of humanity where you really fall in love with them. And I, I I never forgot those moments.
1: Oh, that's excellent. Mm -hmm. Casey. Uh, it would be uncouth for me to say the whole book, right? (laughs) Uh, for me it's the new frontiersman (laughs) and i'm sorry if i stole it from you and i had to keep my mouth shut when you were talking about it the end of issue eight where they have sort of the uncorrected proof of the halloween 1985 uh issue of new frontiersman um and it's funny because it's at this point where the story is truly the shit is hitting the fan like uh night owl has just freed rorschach and they're from prison and they're on the run dr manhattan take took lori to mars and uh Hollis Mason has just been murdered by the Top Knot Street Gang. Um, that's this is the end of the episode. Also interesting, I noted this uh, only on this is that uh, in that that location that the but the the squid actually hits, the band playing, you see posters, it's pale horse, and opening for them is crystal knocked. Yes. So the crystal knocked is Hollis Mason being murdered by the gang. They're the opening band, and then pale horse is the apocalypse that follows them afterwards. Oh. Fucking brilliant. Mm-hmm. Uh so this the text section is like an op ed piece by the right wing editor entitled "Honor is like the hawk; sometimes it must go hooded." The transparent irony of the chicken hawk editor naming that his sort of defense of masked superheroes, it also springboards into this tirade against their liberal competitor, the Nova Express. Uh, but the real joy is like how Alan Moore like is totally gleefully writing this diatribe. It is so dripping with like right wing nut. It's fantastic. <laughs> so he says. He's like he's like the the pinnacle of yellow journalism. He's like smearing his opponent and he says, Doug Roth of the Nova expression, quote, seems to suggest with typical pothead disregard for logic that <laughs> yeah. Rorschach must be bad if he reads the New Frontiersman, while simultaneously implying that the new, frontierman, new Frontiersman must be slightly disreputable if someone like Rorschach reads it. Who the hell do Roth and his cringing staff of pinko sycophants think they are? And then in the same thing, he goes on to talk about... He's continuing his defense of superheroes, saying that they are, quote, the direct descendants of the Ku Klux Klan. But might I point out that despite that some some might view of their later excesses, (laughs) the Klan originally came into being because decent people had perfectly reasonable fears for the safety of their persons and belongings when forced into proximity with people from a culture far less morally advanced. (laughs) (laughs) Jesus Christ. Just unpack unpack the insane racism. Insane racism and nutjobbery in that sentence is great, and I think it would actually pass the Po test. That's how well it's written.
0: There is a cha- there is a, a headline in there called "Coked Out Commie Cowards," <laughs> which is another one that's pretty amazing.
1: So for me, it's flushing out the, this weird world in this in this way that makes it a treat to visit and to revisit because you only see these things open up like a Matricka doll. You know, the the more you open it up, the more you find. So the new Frontiersman, though, is my high point. Sam, high point.
4: Well, damn!
0: Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it sounds like wind out of your sails. <laughs> yeah, I, uh,
4: I was originally going to go with the New Frontier. Oh, run, I'm sorry. Uh, no. Because I am, uh, I am a fan of propaganda, and I, I do, I have encountered a fair amount of racist propaganda in my time. Uh, specifically, the the article is great, but I don't think we've talked about the political cartoon in the New Frontier. Yes. Oh, yeah. Uh, it has every trope of a horrible, hideous, like everything that's bad about political cartoons, everything that you see in Mallard Fillmore is on, <laughs> is on display in this one. And it is it is pixel accurate. I mean, the, the, the characterizations, the cheap racism, the, the serious Aryan undertones, the fact that the art is so ham-fisted that they have to put the names of what they're Depicting in the art the crying Statue of Liberty, I love that. I love when the I Onion mean, does the that. The Onion stole that. Yeah. yeah. Um. I. I. It's. It, it is so accurate that it's. It's stupefying. And I. I suspect I might have similar reading habits to uh, Alan Moore. <laughs> um. Which. Which. Like wow, I feel I pretty love, cool.
0: I love that the big business guy is clearly a Jewish stereotype. Yeah. <laughs> the Italian crime boss.
4: Yeah, and the juvenile delinquent. And yeah, it, uh. well, well,
1: don't forget that there's a Russian with a hat that says CCP on it holding a bomb with a hammer and sickle behind the yes. Whole thing.
4: Yes, it is amazing. <laughs> um, but uh, I, I'm not going to go with the New Frontiersman. I, I will say I'm kind of mad at comics right now. I really am. I'm, what I'm, did comics ever do to you? Well... Uh,
0: Show us on the doll, Sam. Yeah, uh,
4: <laughs> I'm sick of the movies. It's like I, I, I'd like it, I'd like to move on. And do we really need to remake Spider Man uh, every six months? Like I've I've gotten sick of, of I've gotten so sick of comic book movies that it's actually for some strange reason kind of drop like sapped my interest in movies, like yeah. in new movies.
1: Fuck the cinemaplex. Uh, they can have it back. Yeah, there's plenty of movies being released that I can see. Uh, in my own home, well, and it's not a big deal. Yeah,
4: and and so I've been trying to fix that because that's that's stupid. And um, but I was getting kind of mad at comics, and reading this reminded me that comics are an amazing medium. Uh it it the, you can do things with you know there are things done in Watchmen that you cannot do in a movie, in a TV show, in a novel. Things are happening here that really don't hold up in any other medium. Yeah. Comics are unique. They do things nothing else does. To the point where I was, I was, and I think this is going to be my high point, is the moment when I started comparing Watchmen favorably to another story that is about what a Superman might be in, in a specific setting. And that's Dune. Hmm. Huh. Because that's that's part of what Dune's about, and if you know anything about me, I'm I'm horrible about Dune. I'm a big fan. Uh, I read it every every three months. Um, It is 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 you know Paul Atreides is a Superman, and and he slowly loses his humanity over time. He does things. He kills billions of people. He does things he's not proud of, and and this was and it's you know it's it's a great book, but it's this huge, vast, overblown. Dune is about 18 different things. And this was specifically about that and I think goes in places that Dune couldn't. And I think that's my high point is, is the fact that it rubbed my face in the fact that this is a medium worth paying attention to. Hmm. Oh, wow,
0: that's cool. I'm really glad that you mentioned uh, re-readability because that's my high point is that Watchmen is an incredibly dense story. And depending on my headspace, where I am in my life, every reread I've ever done of Watchmen has been a different experience. And I focus on different things, different facets of the story. I end up learning things that I didn't see in it before because I'm more receptive to certain things or I'm thinking about certain things. that The things that happen in my life and other things I read and watch inform the way I look at Watchmen. And there aren't a lot of stories that I revisit that much. I mean, I love a lot of things. I love a lot of movies. Like, I love the new Avengers movie that came out this year. I don't know if I'm ever going to watch it again. I might watch it if somebody wants to see it with me again, or I may, three years from now, catch it on Netflix. But the truth is, I don't know if I'm ever going to watch it again. Not with any certainty. I know with certainty that before the day I die, I'm going to read Watchmen at least another dozen times. And how many things can I say that about? And what I really love about it, because I had this conversation with our good friend Paul Rue about this, and he said that there is no wrong way to read Watchmen. And I really, really love that because we both talked about our experience reading it this last time, when I, me reading it for the panel, and him, you know, rereading it too. And he said that when he read it the last time, it was Lori's story. This was about Lori who had been pushed into being a superhero by her mom, who's trying to live her dreams vicariously through her daughter, and how she's been defined her whole life by her connection to a man, whether it's uh, Dr. Manhattan or somebody else, and that this was a story about her taking her own agency and her choosing to put on the costume rather than having it pushed on her, her wanting it and doing it because she wants it, pulling Dan out of his funk and getting him to be who he could be rather than a sad sack in his basement. He's the I mean she's the one who convinces Dr. Manhattan to give a shit about humanity again. She's the one who helps force that along and he said this is a story about her taking back her her agency and her control of her life again. And that's how he read it the last time. And I was like I hadn't considered that and I can totally see that reading. My reading of Watchmen this last time was weirdly prescient because It kind of foreshadowed what superheroes were going to become in mainstream comics over the next few years, which is that this was a story about childhood fantasy characters that adults were reappropriating for themselves. That you are acting like some guy out of Falling Down or Death Wish, but you're dressed like a children's character. You're signaling that you're a good guy and killing the superhero comic book medium in the the thing of that because you're dragging all of your fucked up adult hangups into it. You're bringing the fact that you've got this weird sexual issue when Superman, for the most part, aside from a kiss from Lois, is pretty sexless most of the time. He's pretty innocent because he's written for a kid. He's written for... This is a good guy and a bad guy perspective from a little kid. That's why Captain Marvel hangs out with a talking tiger, for Christ's sake. And you're putting all this adult shit on it. Like I can't get it up unless I'm wearing my costume and it's kind of ruining it. And it kind of gets into that, that mindset that I had working at a bookstore for the last few years is that I had this little kid come up to me who wanted me to find, he loved Batman he wanted books on Batman. So I take him to the graphic novel section and I realize, holy shit, there isn't a lot I can give him there aren't any of these comics that I can feel safe giving a seven-year-old because the Joker has cut his face off and is wearing it like a leather face mask. And there's graphic violence and all sorts of stuff. There's a zombie story where Green Lantern fights the living embodiment of death and people are ripping hearts and lungs out of their chest. And I'm like, I suddenly have these characters that I've enjoyed since I was, you know, nine years old and I suddenly don't feel safe sharing it. And... It's weird because I know that this comic book, Watchmen, was written way before comic books became that. But it feels like a metaphor for a thing that hasn't happened yet. And for me, the fact that I can pull that out of this book, I fucking love it. I love that I can revisit this thing a thousand times. I'm not going to rewatch the first season of Walking Dead probably again. I might not uh, revisit a lot of things that I really, really loved. But I'm going to watch. I'm going to read this goddamn book like twenty more times. Mm. I already want to read it again. And how many things? How many pieces of art can you say that about? That it's it's an experience you buy, and you're like, wow, that was a lot of fun. It was cool to watch the good guy punch the bad guy. I'm moving on. But the things that you can revisit, the things that you can find a whole new story behind the story a whole new interpretation and that none of them are wrong and all of them are interesting and all of them say something about yourself at the same time it says something about the artwork that's fucking art and that's my high point for Watchmen because it's fucking incredible (laughs) and with that I want to thank all of you guys for coming in and being part of this panel Rob Kelly from the Aquaman Shrine and uh, the Fire and Water podcast thank you so much for joining us
2: thanks for having me
0: Sam Mulvey from Ask an Atheist, good to have you back, sir.
4: Thank you. Thank you for having me read this, by the way.
0: Oh, I'm glad I could share it. And Mr. Casey Doran, thank you, sir. Never compromise, even in the face of Armageddon. (laughs) And with that, that ominous tone, we are going to thank you guys for joining us, and we will catch you next month. Radio vs. the Martians is produced by Mike Gillis and Casey Doran. Our editor was Mike Gillis. Our theme music was written and performed by Todd Maxfield Matsumoto. Find us online at com and send us your feedback at info at com.
5: It was so easy to have an effect because the majority of the writers and artists who come before us had never thought of challenging any of these assumptions regarding the superhero genre. They had thought that perhaps at best it might be a, a cynical joke about superheroes, but yes, there is that quality in stuff like Watchmen there is that element of wouldn't these characters be a joke if they were in the real world but there's also um a poignance to the characters wouldn't these characters be somehow kind of sad and touching in the real world and there's no reason why we can't exploit all of these things